Hey, man, I checked out your uh, video from that NYPD guy. Yeah. Shout out to Donald, brother. Oh, fuck yeah, the fucking love. Go, <laughs> Ted. Yeah, and Dale. Dale, Dale, give him a shout out. They'll love Delta Force. Hey, shout out to, shout out to Donald, man. <laughs> yeah, man. yeah man, we were just talking about how you get death threats for anyone that supports Trump. So, uh, I don't know. I think it's fun with it. So, I had some other questions for you guys, but Annie Jacobson, my favorite author, um, written a ton of books about about intelligence agencies, about DARPA, about Operation Paperclip, Area 51, and her most recent book, which she went on Joe Rogan and talked about, was Surprise, Kill, Vanish, which is about, well, the U.S. Uh, Tertia Optimo, denied operations starting in World War II with the Jedbergs going through OSS, Vietnam as MACV SOG, and she comes up to the most recent with CIA Special Activities Division, Ground Branch, Air Branch, and Maritime Branch. And despite what despite what you said, clearly I'm having a stroke, despite what we said before we started, Joe, just one more time, blink twice if, you, if they're going to kill you, but do you, have, do you have any stories you guys can tell me? Is there anything without, without me getting a fucking hellfire missile through my window? <coughs> is there anything you guys can tell me about an agency that you may or may not have known any stories about? Uh, no. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, yeah, here's the deal, bro. Um, we, you know, and I, I don't want to speak for Dale, but I, yeah. I can probably speak for him right here. We are ethically, morally, and legally um, uh, obligated not to uh, disclose who we work for. And um, unlike other um, special mission units, SEAL Team 6, Delta, once those guys get out, they can disclose, such as Dale, um, who he worked for. Obviously, while they were there, closely guarded secret. Um, unfortunately, because of who we work for, the, uh, the government um, <clears throat> entity that we work for, we are, are basically sworn to secrecy for life. And there's a lot of different reasons, dude. It's not like, you know, there's one reason. There's a multitude of reasons. And I'm, I'm not going to get into why. But, um, but yeah, you know, um, it, it, yeah, I was actually, I was with the Girl Scouts. And I think, Dale, weren't you with the Girl Scouts over there? I saw you handing out cookies in Kabul one time. <laughs> Brownies, yeah, yes, the brownies, brownies, yeah, with the indig, yeah. <laughs> hey, Tom, I get it, brother. I, I a lot of people ask, and you know, I don't take it as an insult. You know, people have asked and asked and asked, and my answer and Dale's answer has been the same, um, you know, over and over and over. And we're not, we're not going to comment on that. But um, you know, as far as missions go, uh, you know, uh, here's the thing: everybody's got a war story, right? It doesn't matter what unit you were in, what you did. If you were downrange for any amount of time, you've got a story. Hmm. Whether you were in an FOB or out in kicking doors, I think the most uh, important thing, if, if this is what you want to talk about, I know I've got my notes. You, we were actually going to talk about something completely different. But if you want to talk war stories, this is what I would say. Dale, I want you to chime in. If I'm going to tell a war story, first off, I'm not going to give up any TTPs or times, dates, and places, one. Secondly, if I'm going to tell a war story, I want the people listening to get something out of it. You know what I mean? Like, hey, check out, you know, here's a learning point. Hmm. Dale, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'm actually trained as an OPSEC security manager through the NSA as well. So, um, you know, one of my functions in the military was to make sure that, you know, you know, documents didn't go out that would they were classified or had classified information. And so I'm pretty, you know, <clears throat> pretty aware of what 
uh, you know, what can be talked about, what can't be talked about. Most important thing, like Joe said, what you can't talk about, uh, nor should you talk about, you know, dates, times, places, um, you know, uh, tactics, techniques, procedures associated with, you know, certain operations, et cetera, et cetera, right? We don't want to give the bad guys our, our TTPs and our, our methodology for, you know, uh, you know, prosecute targets, for example. And so, <clears throat> um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. And so, you know, everybody goes, oh, but you wrote a book about Delta Force. Actually, no, I, everything I wrote in there, by the way, um, I did not break OPSEC. And the book's been out for like seven years now, and I still haven't been arrested or anything like that, right? So because I did not break any, um, any you know, I didn't violate OPSEC. And it, moreover, if you look at the beginning of the book, it says it was based on true events, based on real events, right? And so, there's a, you know, there's a distinction there by, you know, using certain terms. Um, but uh, to answer your question about, you know, you know, did I ever have anything happen to me or was I involved in anything, you know, with, uh, you know, OG. the Alphabet Company. And so, you know, here's a kind of a, a funny story. I'm not going to go into all the, the particulars on it, but uh, just to kind of give you an example, um, I was in, uh, I was legitimately operating as a mercenary for Spear Operations Group. It's a small group. Um, the owner is a personal friend of mine, and I've worked for him, you know, internationally, South Africa, Hong Kong, um, Mexico. And so he, his basically, his function is, his company is, you know, mercenaries are us. He's probably the only company, company like it in the world. And it's a legitimate, uh, you know, legitimate mercenaries, not contractors like, you know, Blackwater or anything like that. Um, I've actually, I've actually been a part of foreign militaries um, and, and actually fought on their behalf conducting special operations missions to prosecute targets, um, their targets on their target deck. And so, okay, so you might argue, why would you do that? Well, first of all, there are some stipulations. One is I cannot, you know, for example, I could not join the North Korean army and do this kind of stuff. I couldn't join the Iranians or the Russians or the Chinese, right? The organized, the company, the countries that I was um, involved with were friendly to the U.S. government, okay? Basically, we're all in alignment. And it even states that on the State Department or on the State Department uh, um, website, okay, what you can do as an American, as a U.S. citizen, what are you allowed to do and not to do? Anyway, so got all that out of the way. So anybody else who thinks I was rogue, um, no, nah, no, nah, actually. And, and the information's out there. There's quite a few uh, news articles out there about some activities I was involved in. Probably the best one that uh, kind of uh, dispels all the lies and bullshit is uh, one that I did with SoftRep. Um, I did that uh, to kind of squash, you know, some, some rumors and a lot of misinformation out there. So, um, but bottom line is this. So we were, you know, we had been downrange a few times and, and uh, in a foreign country. I won't, you know, I'll say it, it was Yemen because it's out on the, on the internet. Um, but we were actually staging out of uh, the Arab Emirates. And I remember one day we were in a hotel going downrange again, preparing to go downrange again. And we were in a hotel for probably at least a week waiting for our marching orders to, uh, to launch. And, you know, some admin reasons why we were kind of delayed. So we're hanging around the hotel every day, you know, climbing the walls and, uh, one day, uh, a buddy of mine who's a, um, an American that was a part of this team, part of our strike team, which was a small team. In fact, it was less than 11 guys. Um, he gets a call from a friend 
and according to him, his friend was um, listening to it, was in a briefing at, in, uh, at the agency headquarters. And he, uh, he started off with, hey, man, how are you doing? You know, blah, blah, blah. Hey, it's good to hear from you. How did you, you know? He goes, how do you like, you know, the Novotel Hotel that you're in in Abu Dhabi? And the guy's like, what? He goes, how the hell did you know I was where I was? Where I was? He goes, I'd, you know, we, he goes, we know everything. We had a big briefing about it this morning, blah, 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 blah. And, and he kind of giggled a little bit. He goes, yeah, but don't worry about it, man. He goes, just, uh, he goes, we know where you are. We know what you're doing. And uh, he goes, in fact, you know, we know Comstock's in the room next door. You know, I mean, they named off the names too, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, he kind of giggled because my partner, he was a little, he like, didn't say a whole lot. He's like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told him, he goes, don't worry. He goes, um, you know, as long as you don't take out any of the targets we're trying to turn, um, you know, it won't be no problem. And he asked him, go, well, which targets would that be? And then clicked, the phone hung up, right? <laughs> and so, and uh, we kind of joked about it. I was like, I guess we'll know if we hit the wrong target, we'll get a hellfire up our yeah. ass. So, um, you know, so, you know, and they're all knowing, man. You know, every, I mean, there's actually what's really scary, and Joe and I have talked about this before because Joe and I were, uh, were engaged in something uh, here in the U.S., um, just he and I, and uh, we were really shocked and surprised at just how much the government really can't find out about you in short order. I mean, it's like out of a movie, man. Like, they can literally track you and know where you are, where your car is parked. Um, it's scary shit. And so um, we won't, I won't go into particulars of that, but, uh, you know, Joe and I were, like, just shaking our head going, damn, man, you know, Big Brother knows everything out there. So you have to be really, you know <laughs> – I don't know if I'm breaking optic. I don't think I'm breaking optic. I'm just saying that it's it's like, um, you know, it's like what was that movie, man, with Denzel Washington and um, uh, man, was, where he was a lawyer and then uh, you know the, they were tracking him everywhere he was going, had him on video. They're trying, you know, yeah, they're just trying to take him out. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, we kind of live. We kind of like live in that world. In fact, uh, you know, I, I go to. I used to go to Dubai all the time in Abu Dhabi. What was always interesting over there is there's not a lot of police officers. You, you hardly ever see a cop, right? But there's no trouble. Nobody's going to break into your car. Nobody's going to steal anything. You know, you've got women running down, Western women running down the road at 10 o'clock at night, jogging in booty shorts. You know, nothing's mm-hmm. going to happen. And it's super duper safe. And if you look around, you'll notice that there's CCTV cameras everywhere, right? First of all, they're, they're, they're always watching. But more importantly, they have an informant system that's unbelievable. Everybody an informant everybody okay um and so what that means is as an informant or you know as, as joseph lee and you see anything that's you know unusual out of line you report it to the police police will come um and then you know and basically what you get is a blue chip so if you ever get in trouble you get out of a jail card okay. right and so they're really really good at this so they use basically this form of community policing if you will to spy on each other and rat each other out um I've seen where guys would get in, uh, get drunk and a little carried away in a bar, and basically, uh, taxi was called. They'd, he'd be walked out to the taxi. Said, "Get in the taxi." He get in the taxi. They take us. <laughs> the driver would take his passport and go. All right. He goes. Here's the deal. He goes. Two things will happen. You're gonna go to your hotel room, and we're never gonna hear from you again. Or we're gonna take you right to the airport and kick you out of the country. Or we're gonna take you to jail. But you know, they've they've got his passport number. They got all his. They got everything. All his information. Right. Um, so they're pretty, you know, you know, so from that aspect, it's pretty safe, but the, 
the bottom line is the government is really, really, really watching, man. I mean, I, I've racked up so many speeding tickets over there. I'm like, damn, I didn't even know there was speed. I don't even know anybody was watching or there was a speed limit here. You know, I mean, I got speeding tickets out in the desert for going like 10 miles an hour. I remember on one trip after about five days, I racked up like a $700 um, bill on speeding tickets. It's, you know, it's like, what? And, uh, and you can't leave the country until you pay it. I mean, I'm at the airport. I can't leave the country <laughs> until I pay that money. I'm like, damn. Anyways, um, you know, so, yeah, I've kind of gone off on a tangent a little bit, but, uh, you know, as far as, um, you know, so you know, Joe's right about war stories. No, I don't particularly, first of all, it's hard to tell war stories to anybody because most people don't even understand what the hell you're talking about, right? And the military guys, you know, we've already been there, done that, you know, we get, it's like no big deal. It's, you know, it's like telling fishing stories, you know, yeah. whose fish was bigger, you know, and, yeah. uh, but, um, but it, so I, I agree with Joe that, you know, if we're going to tell a story, there should be a meaning behind it. There should be something behind it. So, you know, if you look at, um, for example, you know, you look at my book, um, you know, my book doesn't have, a, it has war stories in it, but it's not about how many guys I shot, you know, or anything like that. Um, it, the, there's actually, the book is about life's lessons and uh, being a better version of myself, you know, a better patriot, a better father, um, you know, all those things, right? It's, that's what it's about. American Badass. Um, and so um, I, I've read other book guys' books, and I'm not going to call them out because some of them are really good friends of mine that are no longer here. They're very famous. And it was like chapter one, I killed 10 dudes. Chapter two, I killed 10 more dudes. You know, chapter three, I shot 10 more guys from five miles away, right, with a yeah. 45. And yeah. uh, it's like, damn, you know, it's, it's all about blah, 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 you know. Yeah. You know, look at me, look at me, look at me. And you know what? <laughs> Ah, man you know what going to war and killing people that's not um that's not so hard i mean it is hard for people to do that but the harder part is you know living with it afterwards and uh you know and so i mean i'll be honest with you man for me it's not it's actually not hard to live with um the, the part is part that's kind of hard to live with is when you see all the other stuff the core you know the collateral damage the collateral effects it has on kids and, and yeah. innocent people you know that's what kind of gets you especially when you can relate it back to um your personal life you know for example you know i've seen you know i've held little kids in my arms man you know in, in uh in direct action missions out on the street you know because they're screaming and hollering so much and just mortified you know and I'm trying to give him comfort because on one hand I see this little guy, he's not my kid, but on the other hand, he's the same age as my kid, yeah. you know, and I'm thinking, what if that was my boy, you know? Yeah. And so you find yourself in the, you know, this human part of you, you know, it kind of gets caught up in all this mess and uh, it can take its toll on you. And, um, but, uh, you know, so, you know, for me, that was, you know, shooting bad guys. I can do that all day long. And I don't even think about it. I don't even care to talk about it. It's not a big yeah. deal. Um, it's like squashing dance. Yeah, I can do that all day yeah. long, man. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, but uh, here, so here's a kind of a, another story. Um, actually, I'll start with, I'll do, I'll start with two stories. Um, and it, and it kind of shows, um, it compares and contrasts, you know, combat with the civilian world and uh, where there's a lot of, uh, where there's a lot of overlap and it really always comes down not to this the scenario, the situation, but it comes down to the man on the ground. So, as you know, I was I was one of the Modelo prison raiders in 1989. We went to Modelo prison in Panama to rescue Kurt Muse. Yeah, um, Gambit. And uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great. It was it was it was termed one of the. It was termed the first um, 
U.S. successful U.S. Um, first successful U.S. Um, military hostage rescue mission. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Alta's first. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard people say, "Oh, there were other ones like the Philippines." You know, when they had to liberate, you know, bunch of civilians and soldiers from the POW know. camps. I'm like, I don't know. This was a, like the first, I believe, the first really planned out and uh, um, you know, modern uh, hostage rescue mission of Kurt Mueller. And it went, it went for the most part flawless. Um, not perfect, but you know, it, was, it went pretty well. And uh, it was a cool story because, and I'll just give you the overview on it, because I could talk all, all day long about it, but basically what happened was um, I was actually injured at the time. I had gotten injured in a training accident. I was on staff duty. I was going through a really bad divorce and I was on medical profile, walk up, you know, hobble around on crutches. And so they didn't have a job for me to do in the unit except, you know, pull staff duty watch every day, you know, 24 hour yeah. shift in the office, answering phones, you know, and uh, one night on duty, I got a call, I believe it was uh, 17, uh, 17 December, 1989, I get a phone call from Joint Special Operations Command, and it basically gave me the, the, uh, the code word to activate the organization and, you know, to conduct this, this mission, right, so I called the whole unit in, and um, I remember I'm standing in my suit, you know, and uh, Major Harrell at the time, he was my troop commander, General Harrell, he came into the office, <clears throat> and he looked at me, he goes, hey man, he goes, I know you're, you know, you're in a bad place right now, going through, you know, another divorce, and you're, you know, you've been, you got fragmentation wound in the leg, blah, 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 he goes, um, but he goes, I wouldn't feel right if I didn't ask you, do you want to, do you want to go along, because this is the Super Bowl, this is what we've always been training for, right, man, it didn't take me long to think about that at all, I'm like, you know what, the hell with the ex-wife, you know, she can have everything as far as I'm concerned. I wouldn't miss this for anything. Right? If, yeah. if I got to do this thing on one leg, I'm going, right? So I did. And and I ended up going down there and, and December 20th, um, you know, we uh, we conduct the uh, the assault. The, the assault was going to go down, I believe, at zero um, at, at midnight. And so what happened was seven hours prior, we started getting intel reports that the, um, the mission had been compromised. Um, actually been compromised by several other American servicemen. And uh, one of them was an Army MP, and the other one was a Marine. <clears throat> the Marine called home to his mommy and daddy, crying, I may never see you again. You know, and anyways, that was, you know, intercepting. Yeah, they and, then, uh, and then the Army MP that I'm aware of went down to uh, the canal and uh, told all his Panamanian friends, hey, don't go around the Modelo prison in Commandante area tonight. It's going to be, you know, shit's going to hit the fan, you know. Oh, so man. all these, you know, this is this is breaking. This is operational security. These are violations, right? So, you know, that prompted the reinforcement of the Commandante, of the prison. Um, the Commandante was Noriega's headquarters. And it was a, it was a military, uh, you know, headquarters building, which was right literally across the street from Modelo prison. Modelo prison being the model prison. It was their modern prison, right? And uh, so um, there was there was actually so Kurt Muse was you know supposedly an agency guy got rolled up um, for also conducting you know some type of signal intercept or whatever he was doing, and um, he had a he had a guard on him all the time, and he the instructions were if anything were to go awry you know firefight started to immediately shoot Kurt Muse that was yeah. his his job right and yeah. so. Um, so we were going to do a ground assault initially, and then we realized that they had reinforced the bottom floor. There was over 60, um, uh, prison guards. There was over 60 Panama, uh, Panamanian defense force soldiers, uh, barricading the bottom floors. So they reinforced expecting a ground assault. 
which is okay because we came in by air. Um, we landed on the roofs by helicopters. And then the entire commandant said the entire block had been reinforced with uh, heavy weapons, machine guns, 50 caliber machine guns on all the corners. And, um, and so when that all started happening, the local population thought, well, damn, must be a parade or something coming yeah. tonight. Let's get the lawn chairs and beer and go sit on the road. Yeah. And so literally the sidewalks, it was like they were wearing, wearing for the, waiting for the, uh, you know, the Rose Bowl parade or something, man. Everybody's down there with beer and partying and dancing music, you know, and there was just thousands of people out there. And, uh, and meanwhile, the military was, you know, um, fortifying the, the whole area. And so now we had a hornet's nest to contend with, and we had a lot of civilians that were running around um, in this thing. So anyways, we decided to, to move the time. Well, we didn't. I didn't. They did. Somebody higher up. So let's push H hour to the right by 20 minutes. So we went zero, zero, two, zero hours is, was uh, the, the uh, H hour. So um, we ended up flying over there. Uh, it was a total of, so we had four MH6 helicopters with uh, the people pods on it, the assaulters. We had uh, four H6 attack helicopters. I believe we had four um, um, Cobras and we had two to three or two to four Blackhawks as a C2 birds and medevac birds also in this whole, uh, this entire sortie. So we took off, there's a minute and I believe a minute and 45 second flight from uh, Howard Air Force Base through over Bridge of Americas. Uh, and then we came through the saddle on, the, um, on uh, Ancon Hill. And as we came over the top of that hill really low, and fast, that's when everything started. Our snipers were already out there. They started engaging targets from the wood line. And then uh, we, as we came in, we, we were pretty overloaded. The helicopters were really, really heavy. Um, in fact, the little birds can only carry so much weight. And I was actually one of the, I was the lightest guy there. And I had 70 pounds of equipment on me. I was pretty, you know, compared to everybody, I was pretty light and I had 70 pounds and I was still heavy. Um, and that was without water, you know, I was just armor you know, weapons, ammo, explosives, things like that. So anyways, they had to, on two of the little birds, we had to take, or they, I can't say we, but you know, as part of the whole program, um, we had to strip uh, some of the avionics out of two of the little birds to lighten it up. We actually reduced two of the little birds by one pilot. So they only had one pilot flying just so we could keep the, you know, maintain the weight. And so that caused problems on hovering and landing because you can't just, Herps hit the brake stop and set it down. It's got to be like a slow hover yeah. coming to a landing, right? And so it's very, you know, it has to be very calculated and controlled. So that means we couldn't have a lot of speed. So we're flying in down Hancock Hill about 35, you know, feet off the deck. You know, not going very fast, man. Maybe, I don't know if I had to guesstimate, 45, 50 knots. And uh, <clears throat> as we're coming into the Commandancy area, to the whole neighborhood, um, you know, it was a hornet's nest. People were running everywhere, you know, people were shooting and, you know, it's hard trying to pick out, you know, your targets, you know, they're running amongst all the civilians out there. They're shooting at you, you know, but you're trying to find them to shoot them at the same time from a moving, from a moving bird. And, um, so we, at, what also was supposed to happen is as we came across that bridge, we had, a, um, an element from, I believe it was the one. 97th, uh, I can't remember now, 197th, it was a, uh, uh, an armored cavalry unit, all right, APCs, M113s, and uh, they were going to come in as, and provide blocking positions on all the corners, right, hold it down with machine guns, but basically help 
block everything for us. And it was Christmas time, so most of those guys had gone back to the U.S. on leave. So a lot of people were left behind, you know, were your, you know, your cooks and clerks and supply and logistics guys, you know, support guys. And they were actually driving the M113s and man the machine guns. Um, so, you know, I can tell you how that worked out, man. Basically, everything became a target. And there was no such thing as target discrimination on their part. It's just like <laughs> shooting everything. And so we come, we come hovering in and um, we, you know, we, as we're coming into the roof, you know, it's a three-story building, it's a flat roof and there's a small, like a 10 by 10 annex on the top. That was where I was going to breach. And we have to bring this verge in as we're hovering, you know, and trying to slowly land this thing with control, you know, we're engaged and I'm engaging guys on the street um, that are like right there, you know, within, you know, 35 meters, or not even that far, 25 meters away, you know, they're using women and kids as, as shields, and, you know, and they surround themselves with them, you know, and, and uh, I still remember one guy vividly in my mind to this day, man, um, I still remember what he was wearing, a white Guayabara with blue jeans, he was probably about five foot nine, had an AK-47S parachute model, um, you know, and, and basically he was surrounded by five women, each holding, you know, little kids, they kind of worked together, he was aiming up at us, but he didn't fire, and they were working their way through a cemetery. As they went through the entrance, you know, somehow, for some reason, I kind of knew that uh, they would split up, and I was right. They all went to the left. He button-hooked around the right, jumped up over the wall to shoot, and that's when I, and that's when I engaged them. And so then we land, and uh, my job was to explosively breach the, uh, the annex. And so when I get up to the door, uh, I was told originally that the door was going to be a steel door, just a standard hardcore steel door, right? So that's... When I built my charges for that, I thought, well, damn, you know, nobody else is going to be on the other side of the door. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I got to make sure I get in. So I use what's called the P factor, right? P factor for plenty. I had plenty of explosives in my charge. Right? I, I calculated what I needed as a minimum, and then I added a plus over, up yeah. quite a bit, right? So um, I had a lot on I'm not going to I'm not going to say how much it was, but it was a lot. Um, and so it was definitely overkill, but now after – when I explain what happened, it's a good thing I, did, I had that P factor in there. So I run up to the door to, to place my charge, and to my shock and surprise, um, yeah, there's a steel door, but in front of that steel door, about six inches, is a jail door. So it had two doors. So the problem with the jail door is, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of surface area to place my charge. All I had was the bars. So I'm losing a lot of uh, charge to surface contact, which means I'm going to lose a lot of energy. And uh, that was a that was going to be a, a problem had i gone with the standard charge for that it may not have been enough to do the job but luckily the p factor, p factor came to play and so i had plenty of extra oomph on there and uh and that's when things got a little crazy i had everything set up and ready to go um you know the other little birds are landing and um you know guys are deploying you know around the around the building and uh, and they're lining up in the in the uh, assault order and i'm waiting for the I'm waiting for the command to initiate the, the firing system. And so by this time, it's a raging firefight, man. Rounds are flying over my head, you know, over the building and stuff. And I'm pretty much exposed. My back is exposed to the commandancia and the prison yard because the prison yard we had, there were towers, guard towers. And the guard towers were guards shooting at us, right? So, um, you know, so, you know, I got a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of chaos going on at the same time. And uh, we already deployed also our fire support positions, they went out to the corners of the building on the top with the Mag-58 uh, Mag machine guns at the time, M203s, and they were taking out the tires, the towers, and you know, you know, any uh, bad guys in the, in the uh, prison yard, plus over at the Commandancy. 
So I'm like, you know, like hurry to Jesus Christ up, man, because you know, I'm standing out in the open there, you know, place hold a charge, waiting for this the go sign so I can I can fire the system. Well, what happened was when I got the go, I fired the system, and it only had an eight second fuse on it. Um, eight seconds. It was like super ultra short, right? Deliberately. And uh, when I when I pulled it, that we had a, a, the tail was a little excessive, meaning the length of the firing system was a little too long. And it caught on my boot of all goddamn things, right? So as I'm running to get away, get around to cover, I feel my boot get caught on this, on this, uh, my, my shoestring get caught on this uh, firing system, and the charge falls over behind me. And I'm like, holy shit, not only did it fall over behind me, but it falls right in front of the stack, right? And, uh, and so I, I'm, in my mind, I'm counting 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. And finally, I got to the point where I realized, okay, you know, this thing was going to go. It would have already run, went. Right? So I run back out there. I grab the charge, and I run back up, and I place it on the, on, the, um, um, on the door. Now, earlier what happened was, I won't go into the details, but basically I had a firing a safety pin um, not come out of the system, right? So it, it, it caused a malfunction in the firing system. That's why it didn't go. And the reason that happened is originally when I pulled the firing system, um, I had a malfunction. I thought, geez, I pulled this thing hard enough. It's dual prime. It had two systems. I said, it's got to be burning, but I can't hear it because the noise, I can't really see it because it's dark. And, you know, it just, I had sentry overload. I'm like, is this thing burning or not? And I'm counting in my mind. Well, you know, this is already about four seconds have gone by. Five seconds I'm deliberating, deliberating over this thing. I thought, man, dude, if, you know, you got to make a decision. Um, get up and move out, or maybe you might just get blown a little pieces and parts right here, right? So I thought, well, it's got to be burning. So that's when I got up and I hustled, and it got caught on my shoelace, okay? Then doing the count to my head, I go, man, that thing is not armed, right? So I run back out, grab it, stick it back up there, and go, okay, by the numbers, you know? And I start manipulating it, and basically then I you know, realize, okay, it's now it is burning. I got confirmation on it. And I completely ran the wrong direction. I ran around the other side of this annex and you know, exposed myself to enemy fire just to get just to get back into the uh, the formation. Boom! The charge goes off. Um, that jail door literally became a flying plate, and it blew the second door off. Both doors went flying across the annex and slid down the stairs, nice and perfect, out of the way. Just leaned up against the wall. Couldn't have, couldn't have done any better. Key factor, man. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't even plan that, man. It was like amazing how that worked, right? <laughs> so, you know, that thing was wide open. Um, we went in and then started to conduct the clearing. Um, finally, got down to where Joe, um, Joe, um, uh, where the where the the the, uh, the hostage was that we're looking for, Kurt, Kurt Muse. And at this point, the the guy that was you know, tasked with shooting Kurt Muse. He didn't know what was, apparently didn't know what was going on because at this point we already engaged guys in the hallway. A lot of them just shit in their pants and laid down, you know, and, uh, and so he was probably in the room wondering what the hell's going on out there. He hears gunfire and helicopters and he was probably trying to figure out what do I do? What, you know, he's probably mortified. And so when the, when the assault went into the room that he was in, it was a pretty good sized room. It's like the interrogation room. Um, he was, he just made a beeline for a, a toilet, a shower, right? A little bathroom area in the corner. And one of my friends, who's one of the assaulters there, um, his name was James, James Sutter, who's no longer with us. He actually passed away several years ago at a pretty early age, I would say in his mid fifties. But uh, anyways, um, great dude. And man, he saw this guy run into the toilet, into the bathroom, and he was right hot on his heels chasing him. And this guy jumped into the shower and was standing in the shower, and he had a handgun drawn, already punched out, aiming at the door, waiting to shoot anybody comes to that door. And James didn't even hesitate, man. I mean, he just 
didn't even hit the brakes, man. Just right on in with a car 15. And, and he shot the dude four times in the chest. The guy never got a round off. Um, <laughs> just, you know, speed, surprise, violence of action. So, you know, there's a lesson learned right there. You know, when we talk about speed, surprise, violence of action, that's, that's, a, that's a perfect example, man, of how aggression, man, speed, violence, man, can win the day, man, imposing your will. And that's exactly what he did. And, uh, and he smoked this guy that had definitely had to jump on him. Right. So, um, anyways, long story short, we ended up, uh, you know, we found Muse in the shit cell. Um, another breacher blew the, the cell door open, got him out. We put a bunch of armor on him, stuff like that. And then, uh, at this point we're getting the call to evacuate and I'm in the, we're in the sterile, it's pitch black, man. Like I said, very noisy, a lot of gunfire right below us on the floor below us. You know, the guys are down there shooting all the bad guys, you know, are shooting out at the, you know, at the other uh, uh, military elements out there. And so as I'm waiting, we're waiting for the helicopters to come back in. We got Kurt, you know, we're in the, he's in the stack. It's pitch black. And I'm like, well, damn, I'm here. I'm laying right by a balcony. So I lay down on the balcony. I'm out there engaging, you know, targets. Um, across the commandant's and there's a barber shop in the um, prison as well. Got guys in that. I got guys in the towers. So I'm out there basically shooting fish in a bowl. And uh, as I'm laying there, I'm thinking I can hear the helicopters landing and I can hear some like taking off. And I'm like, man, you know, was it time to go yet? And I'm waiting and waiting for somebody to tap me and go, let's go, you know, but nothing happens. And after a while, I'm like, I get this strange feeling I'm by myself. Yeah. So I start reaching <laughs> back with my non-firing hand, trying to feel my teammates' legs or something. I don't feel nothing. And I start sweeping with my leg, you know, as I'm laying on my belly and I don't feel it. And then I realize, oh, shit, man, I'm alone, man. And so um, at this point I hear, I hear, the Panamanians, right? The oh, PDF geez. and the prison guards coming up the stairs. I can hear them talking. Let's go! Right, they're they're on the way up because they can hear the helicopters leaving. So they want to come up and shoot us in the ass, I guess. And I'm like, holy shit, they're right here coming up the stairs, and I'm laying here on the floor. And so you know, I freaking man, I jumped up like a scalded dog and started running up those stairs. You know, thinking, God, please let there still be one helicopter waiting for me, right? And I, and I get up to stop the stop top of the stairs to get out the annex door and sure enough the, my bird was still sitting there a couple of birds two of the helicopters were still sitting there and when i got to my helicopter to my designated seat i got another guy sitting in my seat i'm like hey, hey that's my seat man you know we're, we're almost having an argument about my seat right if you missed your off, seat yeah. too bad you know if you missed your flight oh well you know <laughs> you just have to wait for the next one get up damn thing. Or, you know and then if you finally realized, oh, yeah, he got on the wrong seat, the wrong helicopter, got moved out, and I got on mine, I was all happy. And uh, and then, you know, off we flew. And then what we didn't know was Kurt Muse's bird had already taken off the roof. And when it did, it took up a lot of ground fire, fire from the bottom floor. And, uh, and basically the helicopter, you know, they disabled it in flight. The helicopter was literally like flying down the street like a car, you know, taking corners and stuff, hit some right. power lines, and it ended up crashing, you know, about a block away with everybody on it. And, uh, but nobody else saw that. I didn't know that. And my, our birds left. My bird was supposed to be the last bird back to Howard Air Force Base. And it was the only bird to come back to Howard Air Force Base. Oh, and I was like, well, this ain't right. And we landed at JMAL, which is the joint, uh, it's, it's the medical um, unit, right? They were all late with all the surgeons, doctors, everybody's waiting. You know, they had all, they were ready to go for us, right? And uh, they're all standing with their hands crossed. And, you know, one bird lands and they're all just kind of standing there like, you know, and we realized something was wrong. So my team leader gets off and he tells us to stay where we are. He goes out and he's yapping to somebody, comes back and he tells us all. He goes, uh, you know, refresh your magazines, your weapons, lock and load. He goes, we're going back in. You know, the, the precious cargo got shot down. And I'm like, holy shit, right? And so 
that's when I got scared, right? Like, oh crap, because now I know what we just came out of. Now we got to go back in there. Yeah. And, uh, and what happened was when we came off the target, I still remember, um, you know, taking a lot of ground fire, returning ground fire, and then we're getting a little bit of lift in the air. And all I remember seeing was 50 caliber tracers coming at my helicopter because the, these 197 guys, they were just shooting at everything that was moving. And they're shooting 50 caliber tracer, right? 50 caliber tracer, when it's coming at you, it looks like it's a flaming basketball. They're freaking huge, man. And, uh, and, they're, and they're whizzing under your feet and shitting by your helicopter, you know, like, holy shit, oh, you know? And uh, so I knew we were, we were going back into the hornet's nest. And uh, so just as we start spinning up, then we start spinning back down, we start seeing all the other helicopters come in. And what happened was um, an element from, actually another one of our elements, a ground element was in the 113s. Um, they got the call, they knew where the crash site was, they went over there and they recovered the, uh, the assault team and Kurt Muse. Kurt Muse was the only one to, to survive that crash, literally unscathed. They put him on the, in the middle of the helicopter. They had helmets and stuff on him. They had him padded pretty well. Um, all the other guys, um, they had gunshot wounds, the legs and the chest. Um, James, the guy that I told you about earlier that shot the, the uh, interrogator, um, he fell off the helicopter when it hit, it bounced, and then he swung underneath the helicopter because he was tied into it. And his legs went under the skids and cut all his toes off on one of his feet. Um, my team leader, uh, my assistant team leader on my team, um, he was laying on the ground and Kurt Muse was laying on the ground next to him. And Kurt Muse started to stand. The helicopter was kind of canned to the side. Engines were still running. And he started to stand up into the rotor blades when my, my ATL got up, grabbed him to pull him down so he didn't take his head off. And he ended up taking a rotor strike to his own head. And it shaved the top of his helmet off and knocked him, knocked him clean out, man. So now everybody's unconscious, right? <laughs> Except Kurt Muse. And he's like, oh shit. So he grabs my team leaders or my ATL's um, 45, you know, and basically gonna make his last stand yeah. by himself. And that's when everybody came in and recovered him. So that was the, that was the Modelo prison raid. Um, you know, there's a lot more that goes to it. You can read it in my book. American Badass. You know, I go into more, more detail about that whole thing, but that was a big picture. And then what I wanted to do real quick now let Joe talk is, um, you know, talk about, so, you know, co compare and contrast. So that was, you know, combat. And then here's the civilian world. Okay. So Joe and I were actually on discovery channel. We were on a TV show, um, called lone operator that actually Joe was kind of the, was the producer of it. And, uh, we're on the desert one night up in uh, Northern California, outside of LA, uh, North LA, uh, Southern California, up in the desert. It's in February. And, uh, you know, I, I won't go into all the details on this one either, but uh, basically what happened was we had another guy with us, a friend of ours, a mutual good friend of ours named Mike, uh, former Green Beret, former Ranger, was in Delta also. Um, he was he was there part of this this um, this this movie, this TV show we're making, the three of us. And uh, so we had to do a helicopter scene one night, and uh, it was going to, basically what was going to happen was this helicopter was going to fly out into the desert, um, there was going to be a guy out there driving a car, you know, and then the car was going to break and then he's going to call for help. And then the helicopter was going to come in rather than recovering him. The helicopter guy in the helicopter was going to toss him a rucksack and basically point and go, good luck. You know, there you go. That's all you're going to get. We're not going to help you. Um, because of the theme of the, the show, right. It was uh, kind of interesting. I won't go into details on that right now. If Joe wants to talk about it, can, but, uh, so my job was well, actually Mike's job 
was to stand out in the desert with the producer and basically he was going to do the narration right okay you know he's, he was going to talk about the folly of high-speed driving at night with no but night vision goggles or lights in a car in the desert right what could happen blah 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 you know and, and you know for the scene and then i was going to get in the helicopter and i was going to toss this rucksack out to this guy on the ground well we had a briefing from the from the pilot it was a civilian pilot and he was flying a um, um bell ranger and um he was giving us a safety brief early that evening. He goes, okay, you know, the helicopter crashes, you know, whatever has, he goes, don't come near it. You might get hit by rotor blades of gasoline, fire, blah, 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 you know. Um, and he's going through the whole safety thing. And then I remember I asked him, I said, so I said, you know, because there's no illumination, there's no moonlight out. Um, it's pitch black. It was 20, uh, at 3.30 in the morning, it was 27 degrees. I was freezing out then. I said, okay. I said, so question for you um you know the route you're flying you know you brief the flight route i go oh, are you gonna be flying under nods and mbgs and he's like what is that and i go oh damn so i said okay he didn't know what those were I go, okay i said yeah night vision goggles night optic device he goes uh no he goes i'm gonna be flying you know instruments like, oh, okay and so uh, you know anyway so i should have you know that kind of raised a little flag in my head it's like okay well he must know what he's doing because he told me he had flown it earlier in the day daytime um he had driven it and so he felt comfortable flying it at night even though no illumination okay you're the expert you're the pilot i thought more power to you so after a while we got to talking me joe and mike and uh we were you know, talking about the roles and stuff and it was decided that by all of us that i should actually do the narration because i have a background in off-road uh, driving and high-speed technical driving right so i could talk to it better you know and kind of jazz it up and Mike was like, hey, let me, I'll toss the rucksack. You know, anybody can toss a rucksack out. It's easy, fly around, throw a rucksack out, right? So, um, so it's kind of, we all kind of agreed on that, and that's how it was supposed to play out. Well, later on, um, I was out, you know, about 3 o'clock, 3.15. I'm out there in the dark, freezing my butt off, and uh, there's this guy driving around the desert, you know, and I'm talking about the, you know, the follies of driving fast at night in the desert with no lights on, blah, 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 blah. What could happen, you know? And, uh, you know, and then it's like I'm always like, uh, you know, uh, narrating or talking about a football game or something like that so um it was just me and the producer and we're sitting up against the truck and then uh, and then what happened was he the guy in the car called me go hey dale this is so and so um you know vehicles in op you know i need extraction blah 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 i said roger that stand by um you know uh, you know extraction bird inbound and sure enough the other bird the helicopter's already flying a big orbit you know a couple of miles out and uh flying counterclockwise and it was coming around from around my uh, five o'clock five o'clock position, and he was maybe I don't know maybe I don't know five hundred you know half a kilometer out, and all I could see was the red and green strobes on it. You couldn't see nothing else. Red and green strobes strobe flashing, and he was inbound. I, I called him, said Roger that you know we need extraction, blah blah blah. Pilot acknowledged, and then I'm now I'm done. My part's done now. The helicopter still fly over there and drop the rucksack. Right. Well, as I'm watching the helicopter, all of a sudden, out just for no reason whatsoever. Um, it was at about 200 feet above ground level, doing about, I had this, maybe about 80 knots. And also, I just fell out of the sky. Did a 45 nosedive right down into this canyon. And my first thought was, damn, is he going to do some kind of dynamic flare? Is this part, you know, part of the show? He's going to make it look good, you know? And I thought, but damn, the guy's not on night vision goggles. He's flying blind. And I actually thought, that's a pretty ballsy move, right? And so I was counting myself 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. And then, you know, I could hear a little bit of crunch. Uh, and I knew, man, this is bad, right? And so I just, I had a coal miner's light on. And I just started running that direction. And there was nobody else out there. Um, nobody, right? It was a pretty simple shot, or so we thought, right? There was a cameraman out there 
way out there in the desert on a on a um, on like on a boom with a light, right? Filming. That was it. And uh, actually, what happened? I saw him come down off the boom and start running, right, like back to the base camp, which was about a half a mile away to our rear. And uh, so I started running, and the producer was running me. He goes, Dale, he goes, did that helicopter just crash? And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I think it just crashed. You know, and he just freaked out on me, and he didn't know what to do. Um, he said, you know, I remember, he, I remember he told me very clearly. He goes, Dale, he goes, I don't, I've never had this happen before. Tell me what I should do. I don't know what to do. So we're running, right? And, uh, and I could, all I could say was, man, just go back to the base camp. Get everybody up here, blankets, fire extinguishers, eight bags. I said, get help. You know, just do that. Go. And, and I'm still running. So he takes off. I run down this this, this chasm, um, about 150 feet down at least, um, pretty steep hill. Pitch black. I run down there and I'm sliding down the hill. I get to the bottom and I stop and and uh, I'm huffing and puffing. I'm looking around. I don't see nothing. I don't hear nothing. Um, I mean, damn, you know. So I move forward a little bit more. You know, another I don't know, 15 meters or so. I stop again and that's when I smell the JP4, the jet fuel. Um, my pants, the bottom of my pants were soaked in it. Um, from running through the sagebrush, I could smell it, and that's when I knew, man, we're I'm in the impact area, you know. And I start scanning around, and I start seeing a little bit of the fuselage, just a small little chunk of the fuselage, man. It was nothing bigger than a shoebox left of that helicopter crash, and um, so I knew I was in the I knew I was in the in the wrong place, so to speak. And I looked to my probably about my one o'clock position. I see the pilot; he's laying face down. Um, his legs are away from me, his shoulders are toward me. It looked like he was rolled over and his head was under his chest. So I run over and I grab him by his shoulders and I gently roll him over and, you know, and again, it's in the book, but, uh, you know, he, he was decapitated. He was missing his head. Yeah. And so that was kind of like a real, a real awakening for me for a minute. Though. I mean, I had to gasp, like, holy shit, you know, I wasn't ready for all that. I'm covered in tissue and, you know, it was bad. And so, um, I then I look to my right, and about another 15 meters away, I see Mike laying there, and he's still breathing. So I run over to him, and I'm doing whatever I can to save his life. And uh, he's in bad shape. He's not even conscious, but he's breathing. And uh, I'll spare you all the details here, but uh, let, let's just say he was not looking good. And I don't. there's nothing or nobody that could have saved him. I'm, I'm convinced of that, man. Um, but I tried to do what I could do with what I had to work with, which was nothing but my hands. Um, and so he was soaked in jet fuel as well. I remember he had a brown fleece uh, uh, jacket on. It was just soaked, man. And, uh, and I know that because I grabbed him and I had to roll him to the side to clear his airway because he was just a mess. And anyways, and then uh, the weirdest thing happened. So this is the thing that really stands out in my mind to this day, and I can't even explain it. So at this point, I've probably been down there at least four minutes um, by myself, and there's no help coming. It's pitch black. It's freezing cold, man. I mean, I'm I'm barely wearing it. I'm just shivering my ass off. And uh, so I'm thinking, okay, I got two guys. I know one's dead KIA. I got one that's you know right here that's in bad shape. I'm missing one more guy. There was three on this helicopter. And uh, so I'm I'm trying to balance Mike on the side. I'm trying to keep his airway clear. I'm trying to keep him breathing. Trying to do whatever I can to, as best I can to stabilize him with what I got on me. And uh, and so I'm getting a little panicky now because I know there's one more guy out there. And uh, so I start yelling, man, you know, I got two, I'm missing one, I need some help. I need a medic, right? Hoping that somebody would hear me somewhere, you know, a half a mile away, you know, or at least come to my voice. And uh, and so as I'm sitting there holding Mike, you know, I'm trying to figure out what can I do, what can I do, what can I do? And all of a sudden the weirdest thing happened. So remember, I got a coal miner's light on. And as I'm moving the light around, you know, I'm getting shadows and stuff from, from the, you know, the the tumbleweed, you know, the sagebrush out there. 
And all of a sudden, out of the desert, okay, from out of nowhere, out of the desert, comes this woman. Literally, it's like walking at a brisk pace, walks right past me, like within two feet of me. I mean, I could have reached out and grabbed her leg. That's how close she walks past me. Walks behind me, and I'm not even looking back. I just, I just saw her walk past me. I'm still trying to balance Mike, and she stops, and I hear her kind of gasp, right? And then she comes walking back quickly again, walks right past me, back out into the desert. I'm in the middle of the desert where there's nothing out there, right? Just takes off. Doesn't say shit to me. And I'm like, what? What was that about, right? And so I turn around, I look behind me, and there's the other guy landed, the other, the other uh, guy in the, on the helicopter, right? They're casually. I'm like, damn. So I get up, and I, I got Mike balanced. And I'm talking, talking to Mike. Mike, you know, I said, if you can hear me, I'll be right back. Let me check on some, the other guy, man. You're going to be all right, buddy. You know, blah, blah. And I run back, check on the other guy. And right away, it was obvious, you know, with his, the damage done to his body that he was, he was dead. Um, you know, <laughs> there was no doubt he was dead. So it didn't take me long to assess that. And so I got back to Mike, and he lived about another 30 minutes, another 30 minutes, another 30 seconds. And then, uh, you know, his heart, his breathing started to slow down quite a bit. And, uh, and then he passed. And then it was shortly thereafter, the first medic comes sliding into home base, you know, and he's like going to work. And I'm like, yeah, like, dude, it's, you know, do your job, but you know, it, you know, it's over, man. I, I mean, there's no doubt it was over yeah. in my mind, you know, and, and then probably shortly right after that, I heard Joe come walking in, Joe, I mean, Dale, sit rap. <laughs> I said, Joe, they're all gone, brother. They're all gone, yeah. you know, and uh, I'm just standing there like just shaking my head because I'm looking at, I'm looking at Mike thinking, man, that was supposed to be me. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. that was supposed to be me. And not only what was really uncanny was, at the time, both of us were married to Hispanic wives. We had the same number of kids, the same number of age. We both had the same military background. We were both boxers. We had, we had been boxing yeah. together, you know, uh, on the movie set, you know. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot in common there, you know. And I'm, I'm looking at him going, damn, you know, that should have been me laying there, not him. Yeah. How, you know, I dodged that bullet, you know. And I, I mean, and so you talk about, um, you know, survivor's guilt man yeah you know that weighed heavily on me for a very long time right because yeah. I thought, man you know um and the hardest part was facing his family when it was all over so i'll, I'll add some more to the story because what happened was um so you know when after the crash right everybody was involved the faa man everybody was out there and then you know then the investigation started then the lawyers were getting involved you know and you know who's at fault you know and i thought oh my god you know and then i get the phone call you know where were you doing what were you doing how'd you you know how, oh, shit, how'd you come up? how'd you guys decide on this and i'm like oh man yeah. you know and yeah. uh, and so and then I, I get a call one day um probably a month later two months later from mike's uh from his wife and she's like, Hey, she goes, his birthday's coming up, even though he's not here. And we would like to invite you up to Pennsylvania because we have a big birthday celebration for him. Right. Um, big celebration. And so would you like to come? And I gotta be honest with you. I was like, man, is this, is this like an ambush? You know, what am I going to yeah. walk into? Yeah. I really, you know, I didn't know, you know, if they were Crazy. mad at me yeah. or what, yeah. what happened, you know? So I, I, Rogered up and I decided to go and I did and I went up there and I remember driving way out through the Pennsylvania countryside, you know, and finally got to the uh, to the area where they had the uh, this party, which was a huge party. So Mike was um, of Italian uh, ancestry and his wife was Cuban. So they had a big Cuban Italian, you know, party. out. They had about 500 people out there. No kidding. man. they had circus tents out there, bands. Uh, they went all out. It was a big celebration. Right. And they had, you know, 
built a set up a memorial for Mike, you know, and uh, you know, it was really nice. It was really really nice. And I'll never forget when I when I drove up there, I had to park the car. It's a big open field, and I I literally parked right there in the open field. Everybody could see me, and you know, I was a little late. I was like one of the last ones to arrive, and uh, I get out of the car, and I could see all the eyes on were on me, right? And I kind of felt like, damn. Yeah. Are they going to come and mob me? Yeah, What's going to happen yeah. here? And, it, and I'm walking across this open field, and Mike's father comes out of the out of the crowd of 500 something people, and walks out and meets me in the middle of the field. Right? It movie scene. It was like out of a movie, man. I'm not joking. I'm not kidding, man. And yeah, he meets no. me in the middle, and I'm like, you know, really, like, really, really nervous at this point, man. I'm like, you know, goddamn, what? How do you, you know, what's going to happen here? And he looks at me and he goes, "I got to ask you a question." Because at this point, um, we, we, you know, when, originally when Joe talked to him, he said that he was killed instantly. Everybody was dead instantly, right? But it wasn't true. We knew that wasn't true. Yeah. Um, and so, so Don, that was his name, his dad, he said, hey, um, he goes, let me ask you something. He goes, that man that was still alive in the end, was that my son? And I knew I couldn't lie to him, right? Yeah. And I told him, I said, yeah, I said, uh, that was your son, you know? I said, uh, he was still alive when I found him, you know, I did everything I could for him, you know, I'm sorry, you know, for how it all worked out, you know, I, I really apologize. I said, I, I, I did whatever I could for, do for him with, with what was in my hands yeah. and my power, you know, and, uh, and he was actually very, he thanked me, actually he thanked yeah. me. He goes, you know what? He goes, I'm, I want to thank you for being there for my son. And I'm thankful that it was you that was there with him in his last minutes, you know, um, yeah. to see him out, you know? And, uh, and he actually, you know, hugged me and, and patted me on the back. And he's like, you know, he goes, welcome to this family, man. He goes, You're, you are now part of this family, you know. And so the whole family took me in, yeah. and uh, which was, they treated me really well. But I got to tell you, I felt really uncomfortable because there's guilt, right? And uh, it's hard to deal with that. But, you know, his family really made me feel welcome. And I stayed there all day and that night, you know. And, we talked quite a bit, you know, and, and reminisce, but, uh, so, you know, the, the irony of it all is, you know, I, I go to combat, see all this crap, and then it happens to me on a Hollywood movie set. I'm like, it's not supposed to happen here. This is supposed to be fake, but this is just yeah. real, just as real as anything else out there, you know? So, you know, at the end, I, I did a speech in Las Vegas back in December, uh, front of about four or 5,000 people. And that was kind of the theme of where I was going with this. I kind of told the story without revealing where it was um, till the end. And in the end, I told everybody that this was not Afghanistan. Oh, this was yeah. actually, you know, on a Hollywood set. And, uh, you know, first I had literally had women in there crying. Um, but more importantly, there was, a, there was a theme in there that I wanted to share with people. And the theme was um, courage, you know, leadership, um, and sometimes you just got to run into the mouth of madness, you know, and, uh, you know, and do what's got to be done in spite of your fears, in spite of your inhibitions, in spite of your lack of knowledge. Because a lot of people I was told didn't want to come because earlier that day, the helicopter pilot had told them to come near the crash because it could catch on fire, get hit by yeah. flying pieces and parts. So everybody wanted to stay away. Right? They didn't want to come there. I'm like, no, man. I knew that was an option when he said that. I was like, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You know, I'm going to run in there and yeah. help you, you know? And, uh, and so that was, the, that was the example that I was using was, you know, that there's some other things I talked about. You know, it was designed, the, the speech was centered on being, um, was on leadership. Um, it was themed on doing the right thing, even though, you know, even if it's difficult, you know, sometimes you just got to put your feelings aside and, uh, 
you know, you have to do what's right. And so, anyways, I've been talking for a long time, so I'm going to well, hand it off to Joe. I was going to say, <laughs> before you start, but, but you were just saying, yeah, sometimes you got to run into the mouth of fire and just, it's kind of like the guy, your, 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 um, your Delta Force guy that ran into the bathroom after that guy. You mm -hmm. said sometimes you, you can't flinch. It's just, you got to go right into the fire. On. So, so my, computer, my computer's at 6%. I got to grab my charger. <laughs> Yeah, I got a little long window there, Joe. Sorry. <laughs> got me reminiscing. Yeah. <laughs> Not the best memories, um, needless to say, but uh very valid points there. Um the ironic thing that I was gonna say too when Tom gets back is when I got on the bird first, we were all standing around talking about who was ever been on a a helicopter crash. Yeah. Yeah. And, said you were on one in Delta and Mike was on a hard landing in Ranger Battalion and I'm like well, I've never been in a helicopter crash so I'll go first I mean you can't yeah. make that shit up and um yeah it um very surreal uh yeah. situation and uh it was man yeah I, you know what and I remember I remember when we had that conversation um about the crashes and we said well i think we i think we got all the crashes covered so nothing should happen tonight right and i remember that i had this sense of foreboding after that that something just felt wrong you know even though we laughed and giggled about it, like something right. said something told me something don't feel right and then i dismissed it because it was my intuition telling me something's wrong but as i always do the coaching right and my brain, the ego and the superego were arguing, going, ah, oh, that guy in the backseat, don't know what he's talking about. You know, logic started taking over. Yeah, you just, you know, overreact. Right. And then when it happened, I thought, holy smokes, how did I know? You know, how did I know, you know? Yeah, Tom, that whole situation that Dale talked about, um, you know, I knew Mike for a long, long time. I, I, I knew Mike for like 20 years. And um, he used to call me every day six days a week except Sunday because he went to church at like six o'clock in the morning. He's like, wake the fuck up, you know, and he was already at the boxing gym or something. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you know, really? Yeah. But you know, the lesson there, it was, uh, I've seen some, you know, pretty awful stuff in my life. That definitely isn't the top <laughs> because it wasn't combat related. And, um, anybody that's been in a crash scene of a helicopter, um, uh yeah it's pretty messy and it was very surreal for me and I, I remember and it's in my book I, I i dedicated my book to mike i think dale even, i think dale yeah. is well um but anyway it was one of those things where it you know here they go on tomorrow yeah and and it's just you know if anybody has listened to this you know what do you think literally of a flip of a coin Dale would be gone and Mike would be here. That is how fragile life is. And make every day count. Don't piss days away. You think Mike thought he was going to die that day? Fuck yeah. no. Yeah. No, he didn't. And um, that'll be ever, you know, etched in my mind. But i tell you another thing that is etched in my mind, and, it, and it's a testament to, you know, guys like Dale and myself. I mean, most people would walk up on something like that and they did, and Dale saw it, that aren't used to seeing that, just unraveled. But it was, you know, a testament to Dale. He was cool as a cucumber, you know. Um, and, and I remember hearing him yell for medic, because I actually was running. 
I had heard that helicopter crash. And I'm gonna, it's in my book. I rode up in a, tr in a car and I'm looking. I don't see shit. I don't see nothing burning. But then I drove down off the Swati and I see this flashlight way out there. I'm like, oh, they must have had a hard landing. So I start walking and then I started smelling gas. And then I started seeing bits and pieces of shit. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Really? And I literally just yelled out for Dale. Uh, and there, Dale was already there. There was another guy named Travis. Uh, and I think one other person, I just yelled, Dale, give me a sit rep. And he just said, they're all gone. And I, you know, I still hear that, you know, every day. And, um, you know, um, I, um, one thing I, I do want to say about Mike's family, Dale's right. Uh, I deal with it to this day about survivors, survivors guilt over that to this day. And, um, if it wasn't for his father and his family being such good people, um, and I mean, really good people. They're a testament to Mike's life. They could have made it very difficult for Dale and I to have to deal with this. But uh, I was one of the pallbearers at Mike's funeral, and um, his father, uh, I spoke at Mike's funeral, and um, his father took the time, pulled me off to the side, and he's like, I know what you're thinking. And, and he basically gave me a slap of reality, and he's like, we don't hold you responsible, Joe. Mike was happy to go. He was so excited. What kind of people, I mean, think about what kind of a family Yeah. that, you know, and all this other shit that's going on. Think about his family and what incredible people they are. They really are. Yeah. Um, but anyway, one of my worst memories, um, you know, and um, it just goes to show you how fast, you know, I, I got on the bird. Literally, I said, you guys figured, I think in my last words to Dale and Mike, where you guys figured out. Yeah. I went and did my scene. And when I came back and landed, Mike was standing over there. And uh, my last words to him were, man, I hope you dressed warm. It's cold as shit. Because they had the doors off on the Yeah. I got off. He got on. Yeah. It's what you, anyway. guys, were, yeah, what you guys were talking about, survivor guilt, is Mike Durant talks about that from Black Hawk Down. And he said, coming back, you know, Randy Shugart and Gary Gordon, the two Delta snipers that went in and took down 25 Somalis before they were, they were overrun. Mike Durant says that at Shugart's funeral, Shugart's wife came up to him and said, you cannot have survival's guilt and, you know, easier said than done. But what she said is like, no, because if you weren't there and if you didn't survive and let me know what happened, you know, the only thing they ever knew were the publicized videos of the bodies being mutilated and dragged through the streets. And she was like, because of you, you know, I know exactly what he did. Like you describe how he's talking to you and you know, she's like, and I know exactly what happened now. And she's like, I can sleep easier than if it was just what happened. Was it quick? Was it slow? What, you know, was he scared? And so that's what Mike Durant said was just, and he also said that uh, coming back from Ogadishu, some woman who had heard a story on the news who had survived in a cancer home, but all of her friends had died. And she said that, uh, and this lady doesn't know Mike Durant at all. She was like 90. She was like, hey, like, this is my experience losing a lot of my friends and I survived for no discernible reason, uh, rhyme or reason. And it was, um, you, it's okay to look back, but don't stare. And that's what I figured, you know, Mike Durant talks about that with Survivor's Guilt. I feel like that's probably applicable to y'all is, you know, Dale, you can, you can, you can provide that piece to their family. Hey, this, this is exactly what happened. And there's no, as brutal as any reality is, once you, you know, I lost my brother to suicide. Once I could figure out what happened, you know, talk to my parents who talked to the law enforcement officers and everything, the coroner. Once you hear it all, 
man, does it not make it easier. It doesn't matter how brutal it is because once you know exactly <laughs> what happened, that nothing can lurk in the dark and scare you. You well, just know what happened. Your mind having closure. Yeah. And you start piecing things together. And I get that. And, and anybody that has survived a traumatic experience like that can relate to it. Um, and, you know, life sucks sometimes, man. Um, and I, uh, one thing I'll say before I, I, I give a couple little stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think of, and I know this sounds really crazy. I should have brought my, my tin bag. But my, our friend Mike was a boxer, and he was in spectacular shape. He worked out every day. And um, if you open up my gym bag right on the inside, I have a picture of him. Yeah. So when I go to the gym every day, every day, and I open up my gym bag and I get my gloves out, guess whose picture I see? Yeah. Mike. Turn right back. Yeah. So you talk about the motivation and psychology about how Dale and I coach. If you want to talk about my hot button, <laughs> you know, there's my hot button. Yeah. You no, know, he's watching me and he's like, get your fucking ass into yeah. the gym, badass. Yeah. 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 Wake, wake up, what, bitch. Wake that's up. That's what he would be saying to me. So yeah. I, I, I hated that I lost a dear friend like that but you know I'll see hey, let me let me add something real quick just because uh, there's you know we got people we got a guy out there that wants to make this this incident look like it was the fault our fault that helicopter nobody knows to this day why it crashed um i watched it crash and i can tell you i saw nothing wrong with that helicopter i didn't see anything fall off any fire any weird noises it just literally did a 45 degree nosedive straight into this canyon. I mean, almost like a controlled 45 degree nosedive, but it was fast. It was super fast. And so, you know, I can only speculate that whatever happened, and I'm not blaming anybody, you know, I'm not blaming the pilot, but whatever happened, I don't think it was mechanical. Um, or if it was, it had nothing to do with, it had nothing to do with the conditions that he was flying in because he was at, he was at altitude. He was flying. He was flying level. Um, it just. It was just like an abrupt forty-five degree angle nosedive, man. Could the pilot have, you know, had a heart attack and fell forward in a yoke? I don't know. Yeah. You know, who knows what could have happened? But they never determined the cause of that accident. Um, and I can tell you, it had nothing to do with the conditions or environmental factors or anything like that. Whatever happened happened inside that helicopter, um, yeah. and that was out of probably everybody's control yeah. so it was one of those things you know things sometimes just happen and uh you know we always want to find uh the root cause and blame yeah. somebody or something but you know to this day i still I, I still wonder why did that happen why did that happen it was just so bizarre. and i'm not i'm not going to mention this piece of garbage's name um but there is one person out there that's put out all over the place that you know i was responsible for the helicopter crash whatever I didn't own the helicopter. I wasn't flying the motherfucker. You yeah. Know <laughs> yeah. It's just, a, it's just a piece of shit. And he knows who he is. If he's washing, you're a piece of shit. Fuck Free that guy. Like that. You know, um, you know, so shut your freaking mouth. Anyway. Well, I was going to say, uh, the former, uh, he's 90 now, Billy Waugh, who started fighting in Korea and was uh, actually went to Afghanistan at 72 years old in 2001 for Ground Branch. What he said being interviewed for Annie Jacobson's book was, said, some people die, some people don't. That's it. He said, there's no rhyme or reason. He goes, they, it's been happening since the ancient Romans. It happens now with, with tier one. And he goes, and it will happen for the next thousand years. Some people die, some people don't. 
And he's like, you, you, no one knows. It, that's just why it happens. It's combat, guys. Look, bottom line, you know, um, you don't know who's gonna who's going to die. Um, all you can all you can do is, you know, hope and pray you don't get hurt. Hope and pray you don't get killed. And um, but with that said, you know, I um, I've got one story um, that um, and and there's there's a learning thing. This anyway, <clears throat> I. Um, on my first trip, actually, no, it wasn't. It was my second trip to Afghanistan with the unit that Dale and I were in. Uh, we had just got back that morning uh, from a mission. We debriefed and uh, cleaned our shit, got some sleep, and then we woke up, and I was actually on the roof of our hooch. We had uh, lawn chairs up there. We were up there just getting some sun, shooting the shit. It's me and another guy that I was working with, and there were three guys from Task Force Blue, um, which – TF Blue is Dev Group, still Team Six, guys, in case you don't know who that is. Um, just something we're shooting the shit. And uh, the guys in Blue ended up leaving, so I was up there with my buddy. And about 10 minutes later, later, I hear our boss yelling for us. And I could tell by the sound of his voice something was wrong. We're like, hey, we're up here, sir. He's like, get your ass down here right now. So we get down, and we're like, what's up? And he's like, look, um, a predator, a UAV predator just crashed. I'm not going to say we're crashed. Um, we need guys right now to go in and secure the crash site and recover all of the sensitive items and all the, all the, uh, electronics hmm. <clears throat> and where we were based. Um, we were very close. Actually, it was a 20 minute flight. So anyway, here was the challenge. He says, you cannot take any Afghan commandos okay. because of they, they were foreign nationals and they didn't want them around the crash, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. 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 So the buddy I was working with, I go, go find those guys from Blue, get their asses over here. Uh, and then I went over, uh, we were commingled with a uh, group from third group. They were not in our compound, but outside of it. So it just so happened, they had just got back from talking to a source and they were just sitting around debriefing. And I basically walked in, I'm like, guys, I hate to interrupt, but this is what just happened. <clears throat> in a heartbeat, they had their shit on. Um, and uh, I said, we need a bird. All the stars lined up. A Blackhawk had just dropped off a bunch of supplies at the HLZ. I said, you guys need to go secure the bird. Our boss was actually ahead of the power curve. He was already up there commandeering the bird. So long story short, we grabbed our shit, and we were on the bird literally in about 10 minutes from Jeez. the time that we were told. As we were flying in, uh, what had happened was there was two UAVs. One was flying over a target, and it was – running out of fuel and another one was flying in for overhead to cover and yeah, the one that was it. flying out shit the bed and crashed. So the one that was going to fly to the target, they actually rerouted it and it was flying above the crash site. Okay. So they were getting real time Intel. And as we were flying there and we were told, Hey, bad guys are on the way. And we knew by the time we got there, they were already going to be there. They said they're only like a mile away or something. And so we knew we were going to fly into a freaking tick. Um, and so, um, we actually, it crashed in a small valley and, um, we flew up and around so we wouldn't take any fire and landed probably, I don't know, a quarter of a mile away. Anyway, we fought our way in, eliminated the threat, got to the crash site. Um, and the, um, predator was still smoldering, uh, basically burned down to nothing. But the two hellfires were still sitting there and didn't detonate. That's not good. No. So now you've got unexploded, unexploded, uh, exploded ordnance. It's sensitized. 
right? Which I don't need to get into all that shit, but not a good situation, all right? This, it, still has, if it hasn't blown up. There's still all the sensing equipment. Yeah, it's sensitized yeah. so, so anyway, without a skip and a beat, the, the, the 18 uh, Charlie got right to work with his demo, start putting charges on the, uh, on the, um, on the Hellfires. And so um, we started collecting all of the um, sensitive items. And what was so funny is our boss is like, yeah, you need to grab the blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, sir, I don't know what that is. Like, can you describe it? He's like, yeah, it's about the size of a, 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 a microwave oven. It's got some fans on it. I'm like, okay, great. So we're looking around for these things. The, the actual camera that's on a UAV, you know, I always thought the thing was small. Yeah. It ain't. Pretty damn big and pretty fucking yeah. heavy. Okay. Yeah. So um, anyway, um, we had kit bags and some contractor bags with us um, to put the shit in. So, but long story short, um, the beauty of this whole thing was we had never worked with these guys from third group. But it was seamless. Everybody was switched on. Everybody knew what they needed to do. Um, and that's the beauty of special operations because you train like you're going to fight. These guys didn't skip a beat. I'd never trained with them before. I'd never worked with them before. Um, and it was a really cool mission because we recovered. There were five things uh, that we needed to recover. And uh, recovered. We, we got all of them. And what was really hard is the shit was all scorched and burned amongst the wreckage so you're like looking through this crap and the entire fuselage just melted um it literally it was just black crap on the ground and so um but anyway we recovered everything and um while we were there uh two apache showed up to give us uh air support um but anyway it went great uh, the mission was awesome nobody got hurt nobody got injured uh, we got rid of the threat. I think we were like six guys are actually on the crash site. And they were, they were fucked because they were down in a valley. And when we came up, <laughs> we were just basically shooting down on them. They had nowhere to hide. Yeah. You know I mean, they were just – that, that was over pretty Love damn too. quickly. Yeah, that was over pretty quickly. So, um, But the lesson learned there is we were ready. We, our gear was ready. You know, everything is just like this, you know, um, prepared to fight at all times. And – even getting fragged with a mission like that, that went down very, very quickly, we were still able to execute it uh, and execute it with guys I never even worked with. Yeah. Yeah. Just a single mission with right in. Yeah. So anyway, and salute to those guys. Uh, they did a fantastic job. Uh, but sadly, um, one of the guys, uh, his name was Jeremy Wright, um, was killed um, in an IED attack. And as a matter of fact, I'm not going to get into this story, but I'm going to talk about another one. But I was talking to those guys literally before they left um, the base. And um, I actually got to know Jeremy. He was a real studly guy. He, he was a fantastic runner. Um, really cool story. You should read about him. He gave up a very prestigious job to join the military and fight and joined SF. Anyway, they drove out of the gate, literally drove out of the gate. I was walking to the chow hall and I hear boom. Damn. And I'm like, oh no. Sure enough, the call came in, troops in contact, one KIA wounded. Um, myself and about 15 uh, Afghan commandos, we jumped in some Hiluxes. We drove down there. <clears throat> it was bad. Um, we secured the site and um, anyway, that, that's home. But anyway, Jeremy, um, he was a really good dude. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, so 
I've been asked this a lot of times um, in interviews and just from friends of mine that just never served in the military and, you know, you know, hey, Joe, did you ever kill anybody? Well, here's how I, here's how I answer that. Well, look, I was in a unit that our sole job, and Bill will tell you, was here's a target package, go take a business, you know, yeah. go take your business. Um, we prosecuted targets. That's what our mission was. Yeah. We weren't out there doing, you know, pe- you know, uh, security details and, and anything like that. You Any know, hearts and minds. Counter terrorist unit. Yeah. They really classify direct action missions. Period. Yeah. Uh, that's a simple explanation. So, um, but I've been interviewed before, and there's a lot of reason I'm going to tell you this. This particular story was the first time that I was involved in something like that. Look, when I was in the Marines, when I was in Force Recon, never deployed. Uh, when I was Army SF, I, I deployed one time uh, to Operation Uphold Democracy and Maintain Democracy in Haiti. Nothing like Afghanistan. It's like carrying, like comparing kindergarten and college. Like literally, yeah, zero comparison. Okay, and no disrespect, but those are the fucking facts. Okay, yeah. um, so nothing in either of those two services. So my <clears throat> combat experience is with this government counterterrorist unit. So. Um, and I did missions with blue and green and, and um, Australian, SA, or Australian SAS and um, JTF2, anyway, other units. So this particular mission, um, I was on security. And it was, it was just a no, no frills, no thrills. Uh, we were going to roll up on this compound and, 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 and grab this guy and leave. And so I was on security. And just like any Afghan compound, 12-foot high walls, and um, I was actually on the um, black-red side, which, anyway, it's a way to delineate the sides of a building. So I was on the top right corner, and I could see down both accesses of the walls, right? There was another gentleman on the other side, so he could see the other two. So you had 363 on the walls. I was there with a translator and an Afghan commando. And um, so, you know, I'm listening on the radio, here I'm pulling security, you know, and I hear them roll up, no, no explosive breach, no shooting, a little bit of yelling and screaming. I hear all secure SSEs going on. And the next thing I see, first thing I hear this scratching noise uh, on the other side of this wall. And I'm probably standing five foot away from this wall. And actually I had a great spot because there was a bunch of cinder blocks that were sitting there. They were working on a wall along the road right there. So I'm like, I'm behind these cinder blocks. It was up about my waist, perfect cover. Um, and I'm sitting, I'm hearing a scratching sound. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And the next thing I see is this AK-47 come over the wall, like, and it literally hits butt first and just goes boom and falls on in the, in the dirt in the, in the road. And I'm looking at it, and the next thing I see is a guy jump over the wall and land right in front of me, like literally a foot in front of where the gun was. And I remember, I mean, of course, now you're getting that adrenaline dump, right? Everything, everything, all of that, all of that stuff you hear about is now happening to me for the first time uh, in a situation like this. And so I remember distinctly, I bring my gun up, weapon off safe, and I remember the guy landing on the ground. And what's really crazy is I remember seeing his feet hit the ground and the dust kind of in slow motion, the dirt going forward. Don't ask me why. I just, it's just something I remember seeing. And I have my, my gun off and I, 
I didn't know what to say. I went, hey! And he looked over at me and said, no! Well, I don't speak the language, right? Yeah. I've got my, I got him dead in my fucking sights, dude. And um, weapons off safe. He looks at me. Don't ask me why you would go to pick up a gun when you've got a dude, beer, be, you know, dead to rights, dude. He was probably 40 feet from me, maybe. 35, 40 feet. Like, that's an easy shot all day long uh, in your sleep. And I had my gun up and I said, hey, no. And he looked at me and he went to reach for the gun. And um, very obvious, dude, if he would have picked up the gun, well, yeah, he was going to use it. Killer, kill, killer. I mean, kill. yeah, that was a one plus one equals two. So um, I engaged this dude. And um, anyway, I, I start, after it was done, I start piecing together what happened. And it was pretty obvious. The guy didn't have a sling on his on his on his AK. Hmm. So he was trying to climb the back of this fucking wall with a gun in his hand and he couldn't do it. So he throws the damn thing over the wall and then climbs out over it. And that's pretty much how it happened. But the thing that I want to explain uh, uh, actually talk about is that was the first time ever uh, that I had to pull the trigger on somebody. Um, it's very vivid in my mind, but a totally justified use of deadly force. Um, no doubt the guy would have picked it up and used it. And so, um, but it's funny, it, it, this all has to do with that adrenaline dump thing. And I'm sure um, this was going to ask him. Any of these. But this was the first time, and I can tell you everything that we talk about during our classes, it happened. Tunnel vision, auditory exclusion. You know, I remember when I was shooting, the, the shots sounded even more muffled. I had a suppressor on my weapon, but if you've ever shot an M4 with a suppressor, it's not like, it's still yeah, freaking noisy. You can yeah. still hear the damn thing. I don't even remember hearing the shots. Uh, I thought I shot two or three times. But when I got back, I actually downloaded my magazine and I shot seven times. Jesus. So if you would have asked me, Joe, how many times did you shoot? I would have been like, I don't know, two or three times. But I shot seven times. Um, but, you know, it's just one Slow of those down. things where. What's, you said it slows down too. Yeah, dude. It, everything. Yep. It was exactly like you would see, like. Have you ever seen the first scene of um, uh, Tom Hanks? Um, Saving Fire Ryan? Yes. Yeah, at D Day. Exactly like that. Okay. Yeah, it was overwhelming. Muffled, echoing. Yeah, it was overwhelming. I just remembered because I remember just seeing like the guy's feet and the gun. It was just very, very surreal, but I learned from it. Yeah. Like, this is how fast you can become inca incapacitated. Yeah. A fog of war. Like Dale was saying, like when he was in Panama, shit, dude, nothing ever really goes to plan. No, like, yeah. you really think, here I am pulling fucking security. I'm not on the assault, assault, assault element. I'm just standing there pulling security, and I'm the only one that actually fires on the mission. Yeah. Uh, and so that was, uh, it was a very surreal situation. And I can just tell you, I remember subconsciously saying to myself, don't hesitate, don't hesitate. Because going training and talking and training with guys like Dale, you can't fucking hesitate, dude. If I would have stood there and waited for this guy to pick up the gun, or if I wouldn't have been situationally aware and he actually had the gun and got up on the wall, fucking over here, dude, he would have dunced me for sure. Yeah. And probably would have got, you know, the two guys I was with. And so um, that was a very eye-opening, uh, holy shit, 
yeah, you know, pulling security, wow, this is real fun, when it turned into a really freaking dangerous situation. Um, and wh what I do remember, too, about it is when I got back, is when I started that's when I started thinking about what happened and like, what would have been if I'd have been looking over here or what would have been if I'd have been like, that's how fast gunfights are over. Just, that guy could have jumped. I could have probably looked at him and here's that whole Oda loop thing, right? Yeah. Curve orient the side act, condition yellow, all yeah. of this fucking shit that we talk about came to play on my first time actually getting uh, to, you know, get in a gunfight if that's what you want to call it the guy never shot back but yeah it's real and it hit me like a ton of freaking bricks but i tell you what man that was a huge learning experience because after that i was like holy shit you could be doing anything at any time here and if you're not switched on and you get complacent and thinking i'm just pulling security you know man oh man it can turn out really bad really bad you know is dale good he keeps moving around. You're right, Dale. Yeah. I'm good. Okay. Yeah, good. All right. Sorry. Um, so, Ted, when did your book come out? Because I remember the first time we talked, it still hadn't come out. Is it out? Yeah, dude. It's been out for like, uh, oh boy, I think like over two months now. It's on Amazon. Thanks for telling me, Dale. <laughs> oh, yeah. I said, thanks for telling me, Dale. You're supposed to tell me when it came out. Yeah. What, what's it it's called? Out. It's on Amazon, and you can also get it at Walmart online. And I'll be honest with you, there, there, there is a, a, a war story uh, in my book. I'm not going to talk about it because I don't want to ruin it for anyone. Sure. But it's one of those things, man. Simple mission. It was me and another guy. Simple, easy peasy. Goes to hell in a handbag. Fucking nightmare. What? Yeah. What's the What's the name of your book? I read Dale's book, so I'm going to read yours. Lone, Lone Operator. Lone Operator. Beautiful. I'll link that. Um, and, um, it's my first book and, uh, you know, I, uh, I had a ghost writer help me because look, you know, I barely graduated English, right? You really think this dumbass can write a book? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so I had help. Uh, I, I did a good job. Uh, but, uh, he, he kind of policed it up for me because I had a lot of gaps, you know, yeah. and, hey, you need to connect these two dots. You need to connect these two dots, but I'm uh, very proud of it, man. It's an autobiography uh, oh, yeah. and also lessons learned because Dale and I are about lessons learned. Yeah. Well, talk about something. If you can't freaking learn something from it, you know, and that there's a story in it uh, that uh, um, has a lot of bearing on just things can go really bad. And, you know, like something very, very simple that we were going to do turned into an escape and evasion straight up. <laughs> Straight up, dude. And there's a picture in the book of me after we landed. I'm sitting on the back of an MI-17. Um, it had been 70, 77 hours, no sleep. I, was, I had one bottle of water with me. Anyway, I don't want to talk about it. But yeah, don't a, buddy spoil. Mine, a buddy of mine walked up, and he's like, damn, dude, you checked that block. And he took a picture of me. Thousand yards there, and he ended up he ended up sending it to me when I got home. He's like, "Dude, here's a picture of you on the fucking bird after you got picked up." And I looked like fucking ten miles of rough road, dude. Like I was fucked up, like straight up dehydrated. We had both the guy was with me, both had lost ten pounds. Um, yeah, it was it was bad. My eyes looked like two pistols in a snowbank. Red, I was sunburned. I was fucked up, dude. Fucked up. But anyway, uh, we made it. 
and I'm going to tell you right now, it's in the book, but I'm going to tell you, the only reason we made it, physical fitness. Fuck yeah. Physical fitness, dude. We put time and distance between us and the bad guys. And what was so funny, when we got back, uh, we had BFTs with us. Uh, you know what those are? Blue Force trackers. Anyway, there's, anyway it's, it tracks you, right? And there's some buttons you can hit on to send a message. Anyway, we had them. So when we got back, we actually looked at, hey, man, let's go on our escape and evasion route. Get the fuck out of here. Really? There was, dude, it, it was like this. You should have seen the cook. We were all over the damn place because we were getting cut off. They had communications. I mean, it's all in the book. Yeah. Um, it was the scariest moment in my life by far. And it's probably one of the reasons, excuse me, why I don't hunt. Oh, yeah. The okay. feeling I had, and I was with a guy that was from Dale's old unit, um, highly seasoned guy. And if I'm not mistaken, he was in Somalia. And, you know, I was like, man, I couldn't be on a, be on a mission with a better guy. And when things started getting shitty on the second day, I could just tell the somberness of his voice mm. was kind of like, dude, this is probably not going to turn out well. Yeah. And, um, and that scared the fuck out of me. And, and he wasn't panicked. He was just being, as a matter of fact, like, hey, I got to go to the bathroom, you know. He just basically was like, dude, this is probably not going to turn out well for us, just an FYI. Well, that, that's what Durant said about Gary Gordon Shugart. He said, they came down, they said, in no particular rush, they said they looked like they were an old couple, like, looking at, like, pointing at things in the park. They said they came down, pointed out, like, shooting, like, angles of fire. And, uh, yeah, and then one of them was hit, and he said, very matter-of-fact. He just said, ah, I'm hit. He said, just, he said, like, you're going to the bathroom. He goes, it's... He goes, he sounded, Durant goes, he sounded like he was just, he was upset because it was going to make things that much harder. He goes, right. he goes, ah, I'm hit. And then he says, Shugart comes around and hands him the, the, um, the what the fuck is it? Not the AR, the, um, what's the, 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 he had an MP5, but it wasn't, wasn't an AR car. A, a car 15. He hand, yeah, Shugart, yeah, Shugart handed Durant Gordon's car 15 after Gordon was killed. Yeah, and he, he said it like the movie. He goes, he's like, all right, man, I'm going to be right here. said very just kind of like, yeah, hey, I'll see you on the other side. And I think what rattled my cage, and you got to understand something, dude, I'm man enough to admit I didn't have the experience, not even close to the gentleman I was with. Like literally comparing kindergarten, college again, right? Sure. Yeah. He was in college, I was in kindergarten. Um, I think that what rattled me the most was the fact that he wasn't panicked. He just yeah. said it so a matter of factly. Just it fucking I was like, oh, oh wow. This is how it's gonna end. Like really? That and even to this day I tell people there was no shooting going on. Yeah. There was not it was quiet. I remember it was night, it was just a very calm conversation with this guy. And um the feeling that it gave me was claustrophobic, is what I think I used the word in the book. Okay. Uh I kind of just felt like the whole world was kicked me and sure. the, the uh but i will tell you i will tell you right now the only reason i'm here it wasn't because we were shooting better crate I, I was down to like six or seven rounds literally when i got back that's all i had left in my freaking magazine i was fucked i was out of ammo dude done and um and so and what was after that i was only carrying let me see one two three four i had five round five magazines on me 
because it was just something very quick we're going to go do. We weren't going to be out there all damn day. We wanted to travel light quickly, that kind of thing. After that, dude, I had magazines stuck up my ass after that. I'm like, fuck this. I'm not going anywhere with four damn magazines again. Well, you know? Yeah, like I was battle. packing heavy after that. And people would laugh at me like, dude, why are you carrying so much ammo? Eh, I'll tell you something. Well, dude. well, it's like the Battle of Mogadishu. It's after that you always bring NVGs. It's you yeah. don't. Yeah, we'll be right back. Famous well, sure Famous Dude, that's upwards. exactly what happened to us. We yeah. were supposed to be in and out of there. It was a daylight mission. It was fucked up in the first place, but we didn't have a choice. And it was supposed yeah. to be good at it, and we're gone. Yeah. It's, it's no facto. Well, guess what? It didn't work out that way. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, it, you know, again, um, being around guys of Dale's caliber, you know, I came from, you know, SF never ever worked around guys you know from dale's unit or guys from blue uh from seal team six highly experienced guys um it just made me that much better of an operator because i always felt like i was playing catch up yeah that's why i shot more and worked out more and just i always felt like i had to be that much better just to be around these guys and it made me a better operator and um but yeah that if you get my book read it uh, I, I laid out that whole damn mission, and uh, I'll be honest with you, the, the picture um, uh, that my buddy took, every, if you look at the pilot, he, he says it all. He's laying in the back of the bird with his hand over his head like this. And if you look at the bird, you can see Holt, dude, if you look closely at the picture, you can see Holt fucking Holt through the floor of the bird, and I'm sitting in front of a, there was a, a yellow... 500 gallon extended fuel tank. Dale, you ever you're on those birds? They had those big ass yellow fuel tanks. Yeah, the yep. extended yeah. tanks, right? Dude, one round. Poof. And there were rounds. I was like, oh man, like that's the kind of shit I don't want to fucking see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The kind of shit I don't want to see. But my buddy took a picture, and uh the picture's worth a thousand words um right after we got back. But uh but anyway, yeah, war stories are cool, man. You know, everybody's got them. But if, you know, if you're going to tell a war story, tell a war story that has some meaning yeah. and it has some bones to it that you can actually tell people like, hey, you know, yeah, you are going to fight just like you train. You are going to default. No matter who you are, whether you're a Dale Comstock or me, wherever, yeah. you are going to default to your training, period. Yeah. Whether you've got none and standard like, uh, yeah. or you're going to be like, yeah. Like, for example, I just told us the deal. When uh, we got the call to go retrieve that predator, I don't even remember grabbing contractor bags and kit bags. It's just I had them. yeah. I was just like, yep, you better bring some fucking carry this shit out with, you know, because you're going to be a lot of shit. So yeah. I don't even remember grabbing it, but I had a kit bag that had like four kit bags in it and probably 10 contractor bags. Yeah. And I started passing them out. I'm like, where the fuck did these Dude, go? It's like what NFL players say. They said they'll look back on like the Super Bowl. And they're like, you don't even remember the first quarter because you're so. Yeah. But you look back and you'd be like, man, there I am. I'm doing the fundamentals. They say yeah. it literally takes like a quarter to chill that, like, Dude, chill out. What was that word they just used? What? Fundamentals. Fundamentals, Dude, yeah. You could ask Dale too. If you are brilliant at the fundamentals, you can do a lot of shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Dale, am I not right or wrong? That's right. If Absolutely. you are brilliant in the fundamentals, because people are like, oh, dude, teach me some high speed. Huh? Yeah. Bro, 
get good at the fundamentals and then you can start learning this other shit. But if you're not good at the fundamentals and got that shit down cold, yeah. you know, like the seven fundamentals of pistol shooting, sight yeah. line, sight pitcher, grip stance, breathing, <laughs> trigger press, I ain't going to fucking show you anything high speed. You can't even do the fucking fundamentals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, what, what's the that's, use? That's what it is, man. It's just, yeah, you get down, get to the basics because everything yeah. else is built upon that. Um, right. But anyway, that, yeah. I, we can go on all day about war stories, but again, I, I think it's, I think for those that are listening, uh, if you're going to tell a story to someone, get something out of it, you know, and, and Dale's probably got a hundred thousand more stories than I do. I've got a few, you know, um, but uh, mine, uh, mine were learned at a, and I'm not going to lie to you, at a very steep learning curve Yeah. Um, because I was, th- I was in a unit that that's all they did was da 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 yeah uh, and really dicey da um i i like i i remember i remember when i got when i got there there was this old dude he was like this cold war era guy you know it's like carry a 38 revolver and you know that, that kind of guy and i remember he was one of my proctors during a surveillance counter surveillance course that i went through that was a month long it was fucking awesome dude it was uh two weeks on foot and two weeks in vehicles and uh, so he's like, Joe, think about this place so far. And I'm like, fucking awesome. Yeah. He's like, be careful what you ask for, because here you're going to get it. Uh-huh. And then he said something that I, will, I, have, I have repeated him so many times. He says, this place is like an onion. I'm like, how's that, sir? He's like, the more you peel it, the more you're going to cry. She, dude, that she's. And he said it very cold, like he yeah. fucking meant it, and it was like, wow. And you know what? Yeah, well, that organization, they don't fuck around, dude. They play right. hardball. Um, they play hardball harder than. I mean, I don't want to speak for where Dale came from, but Dale made made comment on this. I, I never thought in a million years I'd be doing missions like that. Not in my wildest fucking dreams. Some of the shit that I did. Dale, you tell me that the unit we were in, were those missions as dangerous as some of the shit that the tier one military units do? Oh uh, yeah, maybe even more so, because uh, it was only a couple, a couple of us, a couple of Americans, yeah, with uh, indage. That was it, you know. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have the support that everybody else would get in the military, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, the AT one thirties flying around, and you know, it was very, very covert, low signature or no signature, and don't get hemmed up. Yeah, don't get hemmed up. Yeah, it's and, yeah. you know that's a delete button on a computer yeah. somewhere. Yeah, Joe Who, Dale Who, Dale. Did you just did you just have a? Am I seeing things? Did you just have a pistol? You did see that. I didn't think you saw it. <laughs> it looked like kind of red. Yeah, I was. I was like, pistol, dude. <laughs> I, yeah, I was just. I thought I saw something. I was like, is Dale? I was like, is everything good? <laughs> I was like, I'm just, I'm just working on my trigger press. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, Dale, is everything good? Yeah, I was gonna, Yeah. In uh, in Annie Jacobson's book, she talks about a forward operating base Gecko for a ground branch in Afghanistan, and she goes, they all, you know, they all call signs like Shark, Lightning, uh, Spartan, but all the operators, and they're all saying, they said it's like, um, is Afghanistan's a twilight zone? Of uh, they said it's a moral twilight zone, and they said every day is a new episode. You never have to watch reruns, and just when you think that today's episode can't be topped tomorrow's episode's topped and it said it's one day said you got no problem going in and killing targets you're like that's just we're just going to work it's like and then you see you know kids with someone with a gun behind them making them walk and clear landmines or you see them being raped and he's like 
and then you'll see the hardest guys who have smoked smoked a thousand enemies. He said that's when you'll see these guys just you know absolutely tear up or choke up because it's like you can't if you're not if you're if you're a sane individual with even a little bit of heart like you see like kids who don't even have like their second set of teeth and they're walking wide stepped and like dragging sticks so that they can hit a mine. He's like, you can't, you cannot prepare for that. No, dude. And Dale's a thousand percent right. I mean, I think of, you know, the missions I was on and things that pop into my mind are just having to see these young kids because they're in these compounds with these bad guys, you know, they don't know who their dads are. Right. And you see what they have to witness and what they have to go. How traumatizing that. Yeah, dude, that, that'll make you cry. that'll make make you shed some tears dude because we're still not yeah and you know um that is very very difficult for me to even think about it's just seeing these poor kids having to deal with this bullshit you know yeah it's it's so i I know i've kept you guys about twice as long as we normally go i just got a, a couple more minutes of questions um is is so i kind of wanted to branch from that like five more minutes is from y'all's perspective, what is it like having, you know, seen these things and then let's bring it forward to June 15th, 2020, and you got all these people rioting and burning shit down and America's dystopia. America's a third world country with a Gucci belt. America is, it's falling. It's, and then it's like, you don't, hey man, it's always good to protest. It's a freedom of assembly. That's what makes this country so great is that we are free to do that. But when you see people saying this is a third world piece of shit, and then I th- someone like myself who has never wanted in my life, I've been blessed to heaven and back, and I try to stay aware of that as much as I can. That's why I have to fly, because I'm, I'm free to do this instead of having to clear minds. Gentlemen like y- y'all selves, what is, when you see these people just screaming in the streets, burning, fuck this country, what, 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 what even goes through your head aside from just like blinding fury? Having seen this stuff that you're right, it's not just how many bad guys can you kill. It's like seeing kids serving as sex slaves or clearing mines with their hands and feet. What goes through y'all's minds when you see that? I'll give the short answer because I know Dale might have a longer one. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. I think about guys that I served with, guys that have died that I knew, guys that Dale served and died. You know, is this what they died for? Yeah. Is it what is this what they sacrificed a sacrificed a lifetime of service for their country, for our country to be this way right now? Dude, it's heart wrenching. I just I have a hard time watching. I actually had to turn the news off. I can't watch it no more, dude. I, I just can't. It's just gone from bad to worse. And you know, um, I'm gonna say this, and you know what? I don't care who this butt hurts. You know, I don't give a freaking shit. But the millennial generation right now is going, in my opinion, is going to go down as the worst generation in the history of our nation. That's what it feels like, man. History of our nation. What it feels like. It's embarrassing. And I I don't know where it started. I don't know why it started. We're here. Um, It just breaks my heart to, uh, you know, and then the president gets hammered for going to the commencement speech of freaking West Point. Like, what the fuck? How do you hammer a guy for going there? You can, it just goes on and on and on and on, dude. It literally, it, it's, it's, there's no end in sight. But anyway, 
Dale, go ahead. I, I, I'll, I'll just keep rambling and just, but yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got nothing doing. I, I don't want to keep you That's what it breaks. You know, Joe says it breaks his heart. I got to tell you, man, it doesn't break my heart. It's angry. It just makes me freaking matter. You know what? It makes me angrier and more resentful and less cooperative um, all across the board. I'm telling you right now, you know, I'm gonna, I'll say it. Black lives matter. Uh, no, all lives matter. Okay, period. And I can say that. You know why? Because I got skin in the game. Why? I got three black kids. I got a Hispanic yeah. child. I got yeah. Asian kids, right? Yeah. Um, I can go on on all day long. I got yeah. I got one daughter that's lesbian, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I care about my kids and the way they're treated and the way they're viewed. And I hate that these white people, you stupid-ass white people, you social justice warrior millennial knuckleheads, don't tell me and my kids or my kids they're oppressed and they're not getting ahead because a white man like me. Yeah. Okay, shut up. All right, that's what pisses me off is these, these white kids, these millennials are too stupid to know what the world is really about. I've lived in, traveled to, or worked in over 90 countries in the world. That's what I do. I've been everywhere, I've seen it all. I've been to Africa, okay? Africans are not like American, African Americans, not even close. They laugh at American Africans like, what? They, you have no idea how good you have in this country, you know? And, uh, and I'm, I'm sick of it, and I, I'm to the point where you can't break my heart. All you do is make me meager and matter and want yeah. to see you lose and fail, yeah. even more so. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I'm not the one that goes, oh, I'm so sorry. No, you know what? Okay. You pissed me off. You know what? I'm just going to stand up hard. I'm going to stand up stronger against you, you know, because that's not Amen. how it works. You no. destroyed my country. You destroy everything within it. You destroy everything I fought for, my, my, my father fought for, my cousins, my uncles, my family, my sister, all of us military were veterans, okay? And this is what we fought for, and this is what you're going to do, and you're going to spit in my face, okay? And basically, it's a lie. It's all based on a lie. This whole Black Lives Movement is based on a statistical lie, all right? The facts don't bear it out. There's facts that, that say it's bullshit. All right, well, proportionally more, no, proportionally nothing, because 13% yeah. of the population commits over 55% of felonious crimes. Okay, there's cause and effect to everything. You know what? And I don't want to hear about your emotions and all that garbage. I'm not saying racism doesn't exist. I guess I have to caveat every, Now we have to caveat that I'm talking, well, I'm not racist, you know, and I hate that I even have to do that, yeah. okay? Because if I don't, I'll be called a racist anyway, so it really don't matter yeah. um, for, for telling the truth. At the end of the day, man, somebody asked me, do I hate Democrats? You know what? The Democrats, I see the Democratic Party as terrorists. They are the ones that they are the one that are fomenting this. All right. They're using things called Antifa, Antifa and BLM, right? They're using them as their, their enablers, right? To manipulate, to manipulate their action arm out there. These young black kid people, these young dumb white kids, man, they're going out there, they're the action arm, they're destroying everything through these enablers fomented and supported by people in the backside, Soros, you know, Clintons, and we can go on all day long, the Democratic Party. This is a war. We are in a hybrid war, man. We're in a shadow war that's being yeah. supported from outside. The Chinese, the Chinese, Communist Chinese, the Russians, there's a lot of people that got something, that got, Absolutely. you know, have staked in the game. They want to see us fail. And Absolutely. they're using us, they're, they're destroying us from within. And so to answer your question, you know what? You can't break my heart. All you do is enrage me even more and want to, and even want to stand stronger against you. Fuck yeah. I don't, I'm not buying into the cause. You, you lost me on that when you lost me on that when you started destroying innocent people's lives, businesses, destroying, you even attack yeah. your own kind. You destroy your own neighborhoods. 
you got white people bowing down and literally, you know, kissing people's yeah, feet. That. Yeah. I am done with this shit. You guys are morons. You're all idiots. You know, you're all idiots. You know, you're being manipulated at the highest levels. You know, and don't I'll even know. to be politically correct, but I'm going to go get my nails done and my pant pant pedicure done when I'm done. <laughs> hey, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> hey, look, no, dude, I, I say oh, that, oh, yeah, oh. it pisses me off too, but it, it does hurt me to think about those that have sacrificed for our country. You know, if they could see what's going on right now, they'd be like, Jesus, are you kidding me? But, dude, here's – let me just say this real quick. Y'all can talk gongs you want. I got nothing going. I just don't want to hold y'all. This is the scary part about this, okay? We are now in a position that you have two sides to choose. You can call it side A, side B, red, green, black, what doesn't matter. A side, B side. There's no gray area. Yeah. Now, because of this, you are either friend or foe. Or against. That's it. There's no gray area. You That's can't say, well, you know what? Let's look at – no one is giving you an opportunity to do that. That's when it becomes dangerous. That's, yeah, that's you're either for or against. Period. That's never that's good. Dangerous. That's never that's good for anything, dude. That's why. That's why I have. I'm very conservative. That's why I have on my liberal Hispanic friend who worked for the Obama administration. I have him on every like 20 episodes, just because I'm like I want to be drawn towards the middle. I'm like I don't want to go jerk each other off all on our own political beliefs. Like, that doesn't get you anywhere. You gotta. You have to challenge your own beliefs, but. Dale, you said it. Shadow War. I was you, all right. You obviously, you're a smart guy. You, you beat me to the punch. But I wanted to lead it to that. I, this is absolutely. I mean, I say it, but it doesn't matter because I don't have a military background. But you guys, this was literally your field of expertise. Is this being fomented from outside? Is this CCP driven or Russian driven? Is that is the Capitol Hill autonomous zone? Is that a forward operating base for the CCP? What is? No, but I, I tell you what, it's a it's a collection of of uh actors involved in this thing you know this whole ccp thing this virus okay i believe that was deliberate chinese were going down hard for economically trump was handing them their ass yeah right the only way they could save their ass is do this right and, the and they didn't care going. what they did to the rest of the world to, to further their agenda they don't care about the rest of the world i mean listen you know, they're the one, I mean, we go all day long about, you know, what are they doing to the Muslims in China, man? They got literally have concentration camps, right? Yeah. Um, literally, you know, I mean, these, they're, they're, they're the Nazis themselves, yeah. but they, you know, they create, they help create this environment to further their agenda. And then, you know, you have the Russians and the Chinese taking advantage of this thing, which, you know, called troll farming, right? They're out there, they're putting this information out there on the internet. They're creating all this propaganda that people are buying into, right? They're, they're, they're using a new form of warfare, man, electronic warfare to, to win. Um, and then you got, you know, then you have within, you have, you know, I'm going to keep saying it, the Democratic Party, man, they're taking advantage of this. It's like, man, let's, let's stir this pot some more. Let's take advantage of this thing. Let's, you know, let's, let's manipulate these people. You have, you have the Antifa, you know, that's, you know, a bunch of moron, a bunch of cellar dwellers, man. You know, well, we're going to be communists. You have no idea what communism is. You have pieces of shit. Yeah. You have no idea what warfare is, man. I'm going to tell you what, I can't wait till that day actually starts in this country and they watch your buddy's face explode, man, when a 556 five, goes through the forehead. You know, they go, wait a minute, this shit's actually not like no, the oh, wait, this movies, is real. Man. Hey, where's that reset button like on yeah. uh, those yeah. games? Yeah. yeah, I don't want to do yeah. this one. I take the game out. No, man, this is real. When you're, but you know what? This will be an easy, this will, no matter how it ends, it'll end badly for that side because, uh, 
they don't know how to fight. And they have no armed. idea how to fight. They're not some out here that can take Tom, a- you want to hear something crazy too? Um, I don't know if a lot of people know this or not, but uh, the Republican convention was supposed to be in Charlotte, right? Huh. Um, this year. And so I don't want to misquote this. It was either the mayor of Charlotte. I think it was the mayor, um, Democrat, or the governor. I think it was the mayor said you will exercise social distancing and this stadium that was going to hold 20,000 people for the Republican convention, you can now fit five. Yeah. So what did the Republican convention do? They are now going to Florida. I believe it's Florida. So do you know how much money that cost the city of Charlotte? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Think about Over $200 million that had been given back to the business owners to revitalize the economy. But no, this scumbag, yeah, you're a scumbag because your political agenda, okay, tells the Republican convention, basically sabotages it, that no, you can only have about 5,000 people show up and the rest can't show up because they're going to do social distancing. So now the Republican convention shifted gears and now they're having it down in Charlotte somewhere. Or excuse me, in Florida somewhere. Really? Yeah, and that's crazy. I can't even wrap my head around that. Dude, it's a it's COVID is a tool. If you're out protesting yeah. and burning down businesses, go do it. If you want to go to a Trump rally, don't spread COVID. Come yeah. on, man. Choose you know one. What? Choose one. The dumb, the dumb masses buy into it. It's the oh. dumb masses. Right, the circuit. dumb masses. They're too damn dumb to use critical thinking skills. And and look and analyze. They don't even they don't even pay attention, man. They get their news from their friends who thought they heard something on CNN, you know, and they regurgitate it. They have no freaking clue, man, what's going on in this world. And unfortunately, these dumb masses, these dumb masses can influence the vote, and they can influence actually our freedom, man. And they have no idea what they're the danger they're putting us all into. The, and and it's not until your freedom is gone you realize, shit, what happened? How do I get that back? Too late. You know, too yeah. late. Too late. That's you know what? That's what uh, that's what Durant said on the plane out of out of out of Somalia. He goes, when I got onto the plane, I looked back and uh, like waved at every you know all the soldiers saluting me. He goes, I realized I had something that up until this moment I had never I had always taken advantage of, and that was my freedom. And it's true, man. It's not until it's taken away that you realize, oh shit. Hey, and he's lucky. He he got to get it back. When you lose it on a national level. You don't get it back. It takes a century and a hundred million lives to get it back. And dude, yeah. you know, I want to say this too, while we're talking and again, read my lips. I don't care who this hurts. I'm allowed to say whatever I want to say. I, what is that called? I think it's called the first amendment. Um, uh, that sounds like, that sounds like white supremacist hate speech. Well, Joe. Let me say this anyway. You know what? One of the issues are is these damn liberal colleges that these kids come out of high school and they go to college and when they leave they got decent values and are raised right. and these freaking liberal colleges are brainwashing these kids and they come out and they're completely different it's, they, and i'm not going to mention names but i know two families that are ultra conservative unfortunately their kids got full ride scholarships at liberal colleges when they came out they were so batshit crazy backwards their parents can't even freaking them at they're like what do we do um, these, these liberal professors are just inundating them with this crap hey what are, what it's are facts not fiction 
But and if those of you don't believe me, well, you got your head up your ass so far, you can't see daylight. And here's yeah. a sun punk so you can see it. <laughs> like, give me a break, man. That's what, uh, that's what Cruz, was Khrushchev or Brezhnev, Brezhnev said. Communism will come to America, but it won't come by bomb and gun. It'll, the flag will be raised by the citizens. Yep. It's, it's, wow. it's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's an information warfare. Um, I've, I've kept you guys for two hours. I don't want to take any more time. But um, Dale Comstock, Joe Teddy, thank you to you guys. And for, every, you know, for it's you too, but there's, you know, like you guys were mentioning, how many, how many men have died, men and women have died for, you know, for my freedom to, I don't have to go clear landmines. I like I can sit here at twenty nine and create a podcast. And as serious as this episode is, I can also have episodes where you just make dick jokes with my friends. But so it, although that sounds funny, like that's that's what I mean sincerely, though. I I, I do thank y'all for your service because it allows me to have that carefree attitude, and it's I think it's a wonderful thing. And um, yeah, fuck the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. I hope they get squashed by tanks. And um, you can quote that. Feel free. And yeah. um, <laughs> Joe, I like Joe, the tanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't actually. That might not be good optics. Another Tiananmen Square. But Joe, I'm gonna get your book, and I'm gonna have my buddy Joe get it, and uh, I'd love to do another one and uh, discuss it. Yes, um, sir. Guys, thank you so much, Dale. I didn't know you fucking were. You had clearance with the NSA. I wrote that down. You said that earlier. Not clearance, but I went Bro, through their went through their training. That's what I mean. Jesus, man. <laughs> Yeah. He's done everything, man. Jack asked of all trades. <laughs> he is. He's the American badass, man. He's got it all. Every episode, Dale says something where I'm like, wait, what? What? So um, <laughs> definitely another episode. I need to talk about that. Yeah, I want to talk about that as well as Lone Operator. Dale Comstock, Joe Tedda, thank you so much. Thank you for all your right. service. I think I speak on behalf of all my friends and family. And um, yeah, thank you for everything, guys. Got it, all right, guys. Take care, brothers. Peace.